Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be looking at TFOS 940 to 953. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 940. Story number one D Day, written by Recon 1342. The last thing Jimmy remembered was falling asleep in his lazy chair on Sunday morning, wrapped in the comforter his wife had made him nearly a decade ago. Startled awake by some sixth sense, he looked around to find himself in a featureless room. There was nothing of note, only grey walls, a light source of some sort, and a chair he currently found himself strapped to. The way he figured it, there was only a couple explanations to his current locale. Either the kids had finally had enough and sent him to a home, or he'd been kidnapped. As Jimmy pondered his peculiar circumstances, a panel on the wall to his left opened, revealing a slender jade-green being with large slate-gray eyes. The being approached him slowly, and as it came abreast of him, he heard its voice in his mind. Ah, human, you are awake. Excellent. We have brought you aboard our vessel to gather information. Your world is rich with resources, and we'll make a fine jewel in the Empire's crown. All that is left is for us to gather biological data for weapons development. Jimmy snorted in derision. You needed biological data, so you kidnapped a 95-year-old retiree who is waiting to move on to the Fiddler's Green. Not the smartest bunch, are you? The being smiled wryly. You humans are a fractious race, but strong of build. We deducted that it would be safer to abduct an elder of your race. Our tests will not harm you permanently, and then you can return to your miserable existence, awaiting the fiddler's green you so wish to journey to. Jimmy chuckled, the kind of dark laugh that came from one with knowledge of some critical piece of information that you don't have. But... Need badly. Fractures, huh? <laughs> well, I reckon you might be right. But you don't have the whole story, Granny. The only reason I we humans fight so damn much is we don't currently have a cause to rally behind. The last time that happened, I was just a young lad. But the Allied forces shook the world's very foundations. Best be careful you don't awaken a sleeping giant. The being stared at him with its speechless eyes. Foolish human, you people will fall before our might. What could humanity do besides grovel? You know, maybe you should just take a look. You're telepathic, so dig into my memories and see what you find. If talking don't work, maybe seeing will. He grimaced at the last statement. These memories were kept locked away for good reason. The being gazed into Jimmy's eyes and watched as his memories unfolded before his mind. It saw a classroom and heard news reports of a vicious attack on some sort of naval base. How quaint. As the memories continued to scroll by, it saw military training and then a voyage by ship to a foreign land. The next memory was a steel grey sky and the salt spray buffeting a small craft. Explosions rent the water some close enough to make the being recoil in fright. 
There was a rough, grinding noise as the ramp and the front dropped, opening a view to the gates of hell. Explosions and gunfire filled the air. The water ran red with the lifeblood of many humans. Before the being could make sense of it, it found itself running forward into the teeth of the storm. The human raised a primitive weapon to its shoulder and began to fire as it scrambled madly up the beach. As the human dove for cover, the being experienced pain when something pierced the human's arm. The next memory was of another human with a red cross on its helmet. It provided medical aid, after which the human got back to its feet and continued to fight. Here, it paused. Perhaps these humans were tougher than originally thought. The old man had a fire in his eyes the being did not remember seeing before. I ain't done yet. Keep watching. You'll learn eventually. As the being peered into the eyes once again, Jimmy steeled himself and brought forward his memories of the winter of 1944. All around the human was white. It felt a bone-chilling cold, one it had never felt before. All of a sudden, the air was alive with a crack and the whine of gunfire. Shells burst overhead, and the scenery blurred into continuous maelstrom of violence, hunger, cold, pain, and rage. As the human fought relentlessly, the alien felt it all. Emotion so powerful that it was nearly overwhelmed. And then uh, the memories went black. Jimmy looked into the being's eyes. I took you from the landing on Omaha Beach 77 years ago, all the way to when I was injured the second time in the Battle of the Bulge. I almost didn't survive that one, and still have a glass eye as a result. Like I said, be cautious. Humanity United is not easily stopped. If the being had used spoken language, it would have been speechless. Jimmy awoke again safely ensconded in his favorite recliner, wrapped in his comforter. By the clock of the ball, nearly twelve hours had passed. He grunted as he slowly got up and ambled over to his closet. He reached inside and drew out a canvas sleeve. Returning to his chair, he lovingly unwrapped to reveal a rich brown wood and cold gray steel. Those green-skinned bastards may not have thought he was dangerous, but between him and his garand, He'd show them a thing or two. End of story. Story number two. A breakdown in negotiations. Written by Dan and Angel. We are agreed then. We have a treaty. Treth, the negotiator for the alien race known as the Dargo, asked. Maxwell kept his small, polite smile plastered on his face. As much as he personally disliked the scaly, poisonous aliens... Humanity needed a treaty with the first advanced species they'd met. He personally knew how bad war could get amongst humans. He didn't even want to think what a xeno-war would be like. It seems so. As soon as our leaders sign the treaty, we can begin trading. He reached out to clasp Treth's wrist. Of the six humans in the room, he was the only person who could physically touch the alien without going into toxic shock. That little problem had made meetings a bit difficult, but strong gloves and a no-touch policy for everyone else had avoided an interstellar incident. Now we feast, Treth said, turning to a smaller species that looked something like a child-sized furry caterpillar. He kicked it hard enough to send it flying across the room, 
Get the feast ready, scum. Maxwell gritted his teeth and kept silent. He wasn't sure what the little creatures were. Rawley knew they were organic robots, but the Dargo treated them like punching bags. The first day of negotiations had almost ended when the alien negotiator poured a cup of hot liquid on one of the things, claiming that it was too hot. None of the human delegation had been happy about it, but they were there to make a trade deal and a peace treaty, not save the universe. More of the furly caterpillars came and took the table away, replacing it with a much larger one. Platters, knives, and unknown implements followed. A few that didn't move quickly enough were cuffed or kicked. As the work progressed, Maxwell turned to the diplomat. What exactly are those creatures? he asked. Workers, thy people uplifted them centuries ago to work for us. They are cheaper than your drones, but you need to be harsh or they get lazy. We may be willing to sell your people a few million breeding pairs if you're interested, Treth replied. So, um, they're sapient, barely. Treth grabbed one of the furry caterpillars, holding it up to his face. Tell Maxwell how smart you are. The little alien curled up defensively, its mouth parts clicking out in a barely understandable English. I could work hard, follow orders, I could. I see, Maxwell said, fighting to keep his tone even. He saw his team working hard to keep their own feelings to themselves. The tense moment was broken by the sound of tinkling bells. Treth dropped the little one and clapped his large hands together. Excellent! We may begin our feast. Don't worry, we made sure you can eat everything safely. The food will be a little bland, but we have tried our best. I'm sure we'll enjoy it, Maxwell said. Strange fruit-like objects, jellies, and what looked like baked pastries were placed around the table. It smelled odd, but not unpleasant. Maxwell breathed a sigh of relief. At least this would be easy, and then they could be head back to human space and forget that he'd ever been here. A louder bell rang. Four of the caterpillar workers came crawling in, and on their backs rested a platter with a large fat caterpillar, its dozens of little feet embedded in some wine-red crystal. It twitched and swayed, trying to get free. As its mouth parts clicked rapidly, the platter was placed on the table. You are going to enjoy this, Treth said, picking up a large carving knife. We engineered their flesh to be sweet and tender. This one has been fed with the finest of grains and juices, so it'll be particularly flavorful. Maxwell heard several gasps and curses from his people. He willed himself to stay still. He couldn't risk the treaty over some bioengineered creature. Treth raised his knife and brought it down on the neck of the caterpillar. There was a clang as the knife hit metal. Maxwell didn't realize that he'd moved until the knife cut through his artificial skin and lodged in his cybernetic arm. Treth looked at him in shock. What are you doing? I didn't mean to cut you. Are you hurt? Maxwell took a second to regain his composure. We do not eat sapient creatures, he said. He realized the days of talking and the months of setting things up had probably just gone straight to hell. So he decided that if he was going to end his career, he might as well make it big. Grabbing the platter and the would-be meal, he motioned for his team to leave. We will bring this treaty and this creature with us, 
After a long talk with our leaders, we'll send you a message. Good day. As he marched out of the room, he heard Trent say in its own language, The blade bent on his flesh. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 941. Story number one. So, uh, what's the biggest gun you've ever made? Written by In Babylon They Wept. No matter the species, no matter the career, if you get a handful of male co-workers together in the same space as alcohol, there will be a schlong measuring contest. The only question is if it will be a literal or metaphorical. Actually, this time it was metaphorical. You should have seen it, Barbara slurred. All of his manipulator pincers splayed wide as he tried to give the sense of vastness. Tail to claw, the cause must have been... Grill me like a shrimp, at least 200 meters long. To get the timing right, we had to start using relativity crap. Nadita, crack open the books and find that nonsense. Hadn't touched it since I got me cert. That's nothing, Brissing hollered, serrated teeth clicking together as he belted out each fragmentary thought like Billy Mays with a stutter. Got me a contract. Young man, great adventure. Ground to orbit cannon, colony world, 300 meters. 300 meters. Power supply alone. Nobody was sure if the gestures he made in that drawn-out silence were intended to convey his respect or his arousal, but both were clearly present. Disturbing. Shalom was the most experienced tech at the facility, and he considered it a part of his job to help newbies acclimate. The current new hire was in double culture shock of being at a new job and having his homeworld annexed by the Dark Forest Pact. He figured that it would be a good idea to get this human involved in the conversation, give him a chance to show off a little. He swiveled in his chair, reptilian pupils meeting the human's round ones with ease. You are one of the youngest species we've ever seen here, Earl. You must have done something to catch our attention. What uh, weapon did you make? Earl twitched. It did that a lot, something that China couldn't put down as a human thing or an Earl thing. I, uh, oh, hell, it's a bit of a story. Valrus flailed his antenna around excitedly. Not only was there a promise of a story, but this was the most that they'd managed to pry out of Earl about his past. Share, share. There is alcohol and carcum, my mates. There is no better time. Earl twitched again. Maybe it was a human body language thing. Shiloh would have to research this later. I, uh, well, uh, I was from a colony world. Mining world, to be specific. Mostly lithium, but some uranium... It was so pedunk, it didn't even have FTL come back to Terra. We didn't get word that we'd surrendered until, like, uh, a month after the papers were signed. So, we were just sitting there. And then a bunch of you guys showed up to give us the news. And we got nothing. If you're too far in the sticks to have a com, you are definitely too far in the sticks for an orbital cannon. And we thought that we were getting invaded. Valros's body segments didn't really include a neck so he tilted the antennae down in the best approximation of a nod. Resinge had been sitting completely wrapped ever since the word colony was mentioned. Shido was feeling a little nervous about this, 
but he didn't cut the story short. If this ended in some rant about alien bastards, some feelings would be hurt, but it would be part of the heating process. Earl's pause was only as long as it took for him to realize that he still had everyone's attention. Seeing that he hadn't pulled them, he continued. So, um, no cannon, but we got uranium, and we got these big, deep mine shafts, easily four to five kilometers deep, chock full of lithium. So I get this crazy idea right. At the time, I mostly did structural engineering, but I'd been studying some fusion reactor prototypes, and I knew the gist of how fusion bombs work. You get a fission starter, set that off, and the pressure wave hits your fusion material, squeezes it hard enough to start fusing, and then the energy of those first bits makes it easier to squeeze the next, and on, and on, until you get a big old cascade. Shiloh and Valros didn't seem to be following, but Singe looked slightly less confused. But only just, So what? Your own mind, blow up, no point, no point, why? Earl waved his hand, surprisingly nonplussed by the strands of spittle now on his shirt. So you're following the first bit, set off the nuke in the mine, get the lithium to start fusing, get a big boom. But you're thinking that the point was blowing up the mine, and that wasn't it at all. Them shafts got elevators in them, big ones, and the mine is closed system. Only way the blast can go is up. The realization clicks with all three researchers at once. You use the mine shaft as a barrel, the mother of all fusion bombs as gunpowder. And the elevators as bullets, Earl finished, pleased that he'd finally expressed himself. Resinge made the same gesture that he made before, with a similarly confusing intentions. How fast, bullet velocity, huge! Earl squinted his eyes, taking another sip of his beer as he tried to remember. Something like, um, triple escape velocity? Your ships clocked it on their radar at 25 kilometers a second. Shiloh coughed into his beer. Even the Valro's claws clamped together in horror. The only person who seemed particularly pleased was the Basinge, whose whole body tensed for a few seconds before he leaned back in his chair, a hauntingly content look on his face. Earl, good man, best gun, best friend, tired, sleep now. Shiloh blinked entirely a few times, nictating membranes and all before turning to Earl. I'm presuming you didn't hit anything. Earl laughed at that. His shyness gone. Duh. No rifling, no guidance chips, and even if I did, what am I going to do? Swivel the big fecking hole in the ground? Nah, I only got a few elevators within the radar range, but it spooked them enough that they didn't want to land. All of the info that Earth gave them said that we had nothing that could reach space, so it made for a real diplomatic kerfuffle. We just pulled the pin on that, watched some badass fireworks, then sat there strutting around like roosters for a month before the Terran Embassy could get the USSN craft here to inform us that we were technically breaking the ceasefire with aliens who'd already kicked our asses. He grinned at the memory, but something in the thought soured as he deflated into his seat. You guys were honestly better to me than the colony was. At the time, I was a big hero driving off an alien fleet, but when the battle was done and it turned out to be a misunderstanding, well, everyone was angry as hell that I blew up the mines. Fired was the least of my concerns. They were talking about putting me in jail before you guys offered me this job. 
Shyla rested three-fingered hand on his shoulder, a gesture shared between the two races. Home is where you make it. This can be home now. Earl smiled weakly and earnestly. I guess. I guess can. Thanks. He seemed a little uncomfortable with the show of emotion, and Shiloh himself was content that he'd open up to the smudge in one day. So he diverted attention away from the new hire by starting his own story. So, there we were, trying to figure out how to repurpose an old antimatter farm when the Valros says to me, The others are too drunk to notice how abrupt the segue is, but the grateful expression that Earl shoots him shows that he isn't. Shiloh is good at his job, good at taking care of his team. He's old enough to retire, but in moments like this, it keeps him going. He may not build the next biggest superweapon, but if he can build the person that does, well, that would be nice. End of story. Story number two. The Omnivore, written by Rosie013. Dave greeted his new colleagues warmly, trying to hide his first-day nerves. There were quite a mixed bunch of aliens out here in this isolated orbiting mining platform. Tall and short, civilized and rough, aloof and boisterous. There were no two the same. They were there to operate the drones that worked on the gas giant planet below. Three shifts of twenty, three overseers and seven support staff. Boring stuff, but it paid well. More importantly to Dave, no one cared what your background was so long as you could do the job. No one cared about the obvious inconsistencies in his resume. The petty warrants that would net a few credits for his whereabouts. They were probably in the same boat as him, so to speak. After introductions, everyone went back to the task except one of the overseers, who showed Dave to his bunk, did a short tour, and then a longer safety briefing. Everything else was going fine until lunch. The missile was small and clearly well used. Paint scuffed to bare metal and then scuffed further to almost grey on every surface. Dave grabbed a tray and lined up behind the overseer. The server looked up warily. New guy, herbivore or carnivore? Omnivore, sorry, um, that didn't translate. Herbivore or carnivore? Yes. The alien looked at Dave blankly, before sighing deeply. Look, new guy, I appreciate you trying to lighten the mood, but I have people to feed. Tell me what to give you and we can joke around in my off time. I'm not being funny with you. Feed me both. You can't have two servings. No, give me half a serving of each. The alien recoiled in disgust. No half servings. We can't cross-contaminate for the herbivores. Besides, it makes planning how much I need to make each meal all screwy. Overhearing all of this, the overseer offered his own solution. Can't you just choose one? No, unless you want me to be unwell and unable to work. Technically the truth, Dave wasn't going to do crap if he was forced to give up steak. Confused, the overseer continued. So you are a predator species or pre a herd species? Yes. Great. Now everyone was looking on bemused. So much for a low-key first day. After a moment of awful silence, the overseer piped up again. Well, you're just going to have to alternate every meal. The server blanched, but said nothing. Wishing to get out of the limelight, there was only one thing Dave could say. 
Done. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 942. Story number one. They weren't the strongest. Written by Ender's Game 69. Dominance amongst most species we've encountered in our surveys was usually very straightforward. I've documented hundreds of wolves and the species that dominate over them, and it's almost always fairly easy. There are a few key characteristics. The strongest dominate most places, but if they are displaced, it is almost always by something smarter. That is why so many wolves end up developing some form of intelligent life. Nature selects for intelligence. But it also favors one characteristic in any given bio. So you often do have very strong species, sometimes very fast species, others which have flight or sharp senses, some predatory aspect that lets them, when combined with their intelligence, take the lead and develop a civilization. I thought I'd seen it all until I got to dirt. And now, to properly guide the council's decision on whether to contact the species or not, I present my observations in the most unbiased way that I can. The proposals laid out are in threefold. A. Contact and guidance. B. Quarantine. C. Contact and admittance. The final of the trio of options being submitted by those worlds hoping that the species will be of use in the walls to take place in the fringes. Before I lay out my reasoning and methodology, I will name my recommendation. Quarantine this world immediately. Do not contact them. Do not go near them. Do not invite them to join us. Do not hire their soldiers or militaries as mercenaries. Let them develop on their own, and hopefully they will destroy themselves. I'm sure you're wondering about just why I made such extreme recommendations. To that end, I want to elaborate on our methodologies. For starters, I grey men researchers mistook the location of their brains. It turns out that the orifices that they were probing were in fact not a worm-based hive mind, but rather for the expulsion of waste. The inhabitants of planet Dirt incorporated some of their probing activities, and it became a dismissed and disbelieved part of their culture. Then in accordance with the 34th rule of theirs, they began to make sex of the stories of it, some of them even dressing up in our grey man species. One recollection of our probers was so close to the real thing that their researcher quit her position and left in disgust after she recognized herself in the costume. They are the most perverted species that I have ever encountered. There is nothing that they will not mate with, and evidently they have abundant desires to go out into the stars and seek new species for copulation. One of their story heroes, a Captain Kirk, did so frequently. This by itself makes these primates disturbing and disgusting, but not dangerous. But then there are the other facets. There are stronger species, faster species, but there is no species so dangerous as this one. Not because they are the most cunning, because we have many intelligent species comparable with their own, but rather because they are the most bloodthirsty species that I have ever seen. A typical predatory species hunts to eat, and nothing more. This is how most predatory species in the galaxy that become dominant ended up taking the top spot in their own food chains. They had time to build civilizations. Humans, however, are, in their own words, 
Not dominant because they're the strongest or the smartest, but because they and their ancestors were, and I must emphasize that I quote them here, the craziest motherfuckers in the jungle. We hacked into their networks to speak directly and anonymously with the people, asking about what made humanity great, asking for histories and stories and reference. I admit that they make compelling media, but everything we found that they told us do not touch. For example, when they're injured, lose a limb that they can't repair itself. They create new limbs out of metal and send them back into the fight. If they are sufficiently displeased, they fight for generations, not even looking to win, just to make victory an impossibility for their enemies. Revenge drives them. Bloodlust follows them. They breed rapidly, reaching fighting age as young as 13, and full maturity only a few years after that. Their females bear only one or two young per year, but they are fertile all year round, and unlike most sexually dimorphic species, both sexes are beyond madness by civilized standards. Their women will cut you as fast as their men, making nearly 100% of the age population a potential military force. They fight over money, mates, and even imaginary beings which some think will reward them after death if they live and die well. If we contact the species in order to use them as a military asset, we may, after giving them modern weapons, win battles, but we will lose the war. They will spread, they will start small, but they will spread until they have bases everywhere. And then... They will screw or murder their way over the galaxy until they are on top of it. Some idiot will harm a family. A mate will die. Offspring, normally the most expendable of the average intelligent species, are highly treasured by these primates. And so, if one of them is harmed, it could fuel one of them or more to start a military campaign of revenge that can only be curbed by the death or final victory. This happened numerous times in the history, where a mate or a child died or was abused by a stranger or an enemy nation and spawned years of destructive war. I know some of you will say, use them as fodder, but that will not end well. Some will die, but carry their knowledge home, and every clash will teach them more until they are the best troops. Then they will be too important to waste. Then... We will put them in charge, and when the wars are over, the war will come home to us. Do not contact this world. Do not hire this world. Leave them alone, I implore you. That was what I told the council, and it seems all I did was convince them that Earth provided perfect, untapped military assets. Why hire an expert if you're not going to listen to them? I asked my mate. And she embraced me, her wings folded around my back and feathers fluffing out to hold in our precious heat. You did your best. That is all that you can do. But what next? She asked with a shiver. It'll take some of their generations for the problems to begin. So we will be fine. But with the first groups of primate mercenaries going out now, it is inevitable. So, we are going to prepare to leave for the far corners of the galaxy. We at least can have the sense to avoid them. This is all we can do. As for the rest of the Council Worlds, uh, all we can do is pity them. 
End of story. Story number two. Do you know what rat is? Written by Carl Bynes. Scientist Siliath entered the hall quietly, surprisingly calm for her situation. The newly appointed research delegate usually was shaking their hair, feathers, or other applicable comparison off when they were doing their first presentation to the panel. Siliath was still calmly waiting a turn next to the many other distressed delegates. When you are a speciologist, as I am, you learn mostly about the species' culture, the body of something, how joints move, how the energy is produced. It's simple. There are oddities, of course. Look at some of you in this hall. There are many quirks of each species. They're interesting, obviously. Or we wouldn't care about cataloging them, Sidiath said, taking a tablet and moving the projector screen through many different models of the species present, showing the many odd adaptations species made as they evolved within and after leaving their cradle planet. There is only so many ways a body can work, however, and only so many quirks a species can have. That is why we study how culture works, what their history is. It tells the story of a species, why they might have differently shaped eyes or turned certain colors based on emotion, or have hands for climbing and grabbing, Sidious said, once again changing the view, focusing on the more common, more utilitarian adaptations assorted species had made. Humans... Humans are very different in this area. We all think of them as a simple species. They fit the biological mold perfectly. A reasonable number of limbs, high endurance, and complex brains that can create tools and the like. Perfect fits for whatever labor or products our great leaders here would use them for. The last bit was a slight stutter. That was noticed, but overall, everyone thought that she was doing amazing. As a teacher rested in the academic seat, she was almost inspired by the young student. The way they are different, however, is their emotions and social structure. What we so intelligently... Celia stopped for a moment, regaining her composure as the other delegates nodded sympathetically. What we threw away as mere primal urges, like that to mate, or useless things like losing motivation or what they call sadness, they still have. Yet, they still thrive with these things, Sidious said, bringing up a picture of a human brain, different areas highlighted, labeled with what they did and how. Many of their emotions can actually be motivators, something that they learned over time. Respected, counsel. Do your translators have anything for the word wrath? Sidious asked her eyes beginning to almost glow for a moment as she said it. All but one of the species' representatives gave obvious signs that they knew nothing of it. One of them listening to the translator for a moment longer, one of the younger species, then shaking his head in disbelief and turning back to the presenter. Wrath is a human emotion, one that took me a long, long time before I ever witnessed. But when I did, it was so... Enlightening. A human feels wrath in many situations. Emotions are, of course, subjective. 
but there is one common criteria for it. Celia said, looking down for a moment as she pulled up a video, but didn't yet play it. A human will usually feel wrath when they feel wronged, when they feel that something isn't just bad or exploitative towards them, or when something is so abhorrent, something is so unforgivable to them, Celia said, letting the video play. The video was of a rocky area, with caves and tunnels. The head of manufacturing immediately recognized it as the Hurt-Rivillian Mines. Due to the very electrically active material, modern technology was unusable. This, of course, calls to be fairly dangerous work and need individuals to do the brunt of the labor. Over a few minutes, scenes of workers being beaten, harassed, at one point even shot with small firearms. Not lethal, but most definitely not pleasant for those on the wrong end of it. This video didn't use to faze me. It's simply normal. Labor for the greater good. The last words, time not mistaken as a stutter, but something else, something deeper. The humans, they're not just interesting for the use of emotions. They're interesting for other reasons. Their ability to teach them. Celia said, bringing up her arm from under the table, raising a weapon towards the guards. Before they could fire back, a slew of fire came from behind her as the doors opened, and those other scientists, the many that accompanied her to Earth, came in, holding the brutish, rocky weapons of the humans. Methodical fire came from each of them, marching over the bodies of the guards and towards the oh-so-great leaders. Silius coming upon the head of manufacturing, standing over his shaking form. So... Did we inherit, too, their ability to teach emotions, Sadia said, raising the weapon to his temple. Do you know wrath, Sadia said. The last thing the manufacturing head heard and saw, being the muzzle flash and bang of a gun. The same final moments of so many of those laborers that he had condemned to death on Hudrivillian. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 943. Story number one. Unnatural Selection, written by Rosie013. Piper shook off the water from outside Stanpole as he stepped into the lobby of the well-to-do bar. He knew he shouldn't be there, but he was going to try. The guard, not so well disguised as a doorman, stepped forward fully intending to shove the drenched lowborn back out into the bad weather from where he had emerged, and stopped indecisively. Piper couldn't help but puff up his dull plumage just a little smugly. It was working. The guard had clearly seen his new adornment. Despite the strict hierarchy of plumage that all avian kind obeyed, this was a game-changer, a radical, outrageous display that absolutely should not work. But it was working. So far, anyway. The guard reluctantly stepped back into his nook without so much as a word, allowing for Piper to pass into the building proper. So far, so good. With a deep breath, he still and worry that was twisting in his belly like a fresh luncheon worm, and it strode into the crowd, still a little puffed up as he had seen many of the highborn do in the past. 
Mary was in polite conversation with a handsome fella when suddenly all conversation nearby stopped. Following the shocked looks from the others, she noticed a particularly ragged and waterlocked low-born specimen had entered the room and was making his way to the bar, pointedly ignoring all of the scandalized looks that it was getting. Why hadn't the doorman barred his way? The mustard yellow feathers and the short statue clearly marked him as a low-born and a somewhat below-average specimen, even at that. Even the most dull highborn had lustrous golden sheen, at least amongst the males anyway. It went without saying that Mary and the other ladies in the room were of a more feminine brown. She was about to ask the staff why the lout hadn't been removed when she noticed something rather odd about it. It had some sort of strange crystalline ankle bracelet of magnificent purple blue. So he hadn't been thrown out immediately, but Piper's success was still teetering on a knife edge. He was out of place here, and everyone in the room knew it. In fact, he would have been much more at ease in a regular dockside bar a couple streets over, where he could drink away his troubles with other sailors and dock workers. But he had to make the most of his situation before the stairs got to him. He sat, ordered a drink, and carefully counted out his exorbitant cost in small denomination coins, reminding himself that this would be worth it, even if he was spending almost his entire day's pay on one cup. But that was part of the bluff. You had to act like you belonged, if you wanted to belong. He crossed his leg, making sure his shiny new addition was resting on the other knee. Everyone in the room could see it, and stare at it in wonder they did. It didn't take long before someone asked what it was and where he had gotten it. Mary listened closely at the stranger's tall tale, while doing her absolute best to pretend that she wasn't hanging on every word. She wasn't the only one either. Most of the bar was quiet as people listened with interest. The sailor had been on a merchant run when its vessel had been ambushed by an unknown ship, many magnitudes of tonnage larger. The captain and the other officers had taken the escape rafts, as was their right as highborn, to flee what everyone on board thought was a pirate attack. But it wasn't. They were boarded by giant aliens four times the height of anyone had ever seen, and unable to access most of the ship other than the main decks due to their size, had flooded the ship with some unknown noxious gas to take control. The sailor had been hiding in the corner of the main cargo bay, cut off from retreating to the comparative safety in numbers of the crew when the gas knocked him unconscious. By now, everyone had stopped pretending to listen and were actually gathered around like hatchlings around their mother. Even the barman was leaning over the bar with interest. When he woke, he was in the same spot but with a new bracelet attached to his leg. None of the other sailors had one, no cargo was taken, the would-be attackers gone like they had never existed at all. Piper paused his returning to wet his throat again, this time paid for by one of the lovely high-born hens. He could get used to this kind of attention. He gestured at the bracelet. The other sailors shunned him, refused to approach anywhere near him for the remainder of the voyage, called him cursed. So he set out to figure out what it was and how to remove it himself. Such a pretty item was sure to be worth a governor's ransom. Several of the others in the bar nodded in agreement. A few other males gripped their beaks jealously. 
It was a small but clear line of glass, or perhaps crystal, but it could be neither material, because it weighed nothing. It gave off a faint glow that was somewhere between magnificent deep blue or ultraviolet purple. That's right, a glow! The material at sight was actually clear, the colors lighting it from within. A few individuals touched the bauble, as if not really believing his claims. But no one said anything to contradict him. A few females seemed to have more of a grip on his leg rather than the bracelet itself. Piper smiled inwardly. Oh yeah, this was actually working. The strange allure of the odd jewelry was bringing him just the right sort of attention now. By the end of the night, he would have enough hens to start his own flock, low-born or not. He was moving up in the world, all thanks to the strange near-abduction experience. Piper was glad that he hadn't been able to remove it after all. Chad scratched his head in irritation for the millionth time. Ever since humanity had discovered and began to observe the strange canary chickenadians, their social structures continued to make no sense. The government couldn't even consider first contact until they had sorted it out. Humanity didn't need another contact war. Like avians of old earth, it was the males that seemed to be colorful, and strength of color seemed to indicate social power or status. Except when it wasn't. Irritatingly, every time one of the teams stealthily put on an invisible ultraviolet tracking monitor on an individual, they changed their behavior from what was expected and ruined all of the data collected. It wasn't like they had been discovered. The knockout gas caused temporary amnesia. The birds were none the wiser. If they had, then it would have been obvious. They would have panicked more than enough for even the simplest of observer to notice. But what? What was causing these unexpected changes? It would have to do what the observers were meant to do. Chad would just have to wait and watch while he figured out this puzzle. End of story. Story number two. Wait, how fast did you say it goes? Written by Big Blue Button Man. 2,000 kilometers an hour and max speed! Isn't that feckin' cool? The human exclaimed. For fun! The bug-eyed alien simply couldn't comprehend the words coming out of the human's mouth. Why the hell wouldn't it be fun, eh? Uh, you going to crash? Well, uh, maybe. I don't know. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. You would die. Yes, yes. And you're gonna drive it through that, that giant thing that you call a uh, track three times against 29 other machines of the same type. Yes. And after the first time going through it at 1500 kilometers per hour, you get a boost which um, you use throughout the rest of the two laps, increasing your speed even further. Yep, more exciting that way. And you controlled it without instantly flying off the track and dying. Uh, sometimes that happens, but I ran a simulator a hundred times. I should be good. Why did you humans come up with this? So, uh, there was this old race car video game released in 2003. Oh, it was genius, even though the concept didn't quite catch on at the time. Super fast, but it was the only video game. At least to say, some people weren't happy that they couldn't drive actual supersonic hovercars through ludicrously designed race car tracks and opted 
to find a way to make it a reality in the year 2204, making the race even faster than the video game. It was an astounding success, and we've held this Grand Prix every year since. How fast was a, a typical, actual human race before 2204? A paltry fecking 500 kilometers an hour at best. I'm so happy we dumped those lame things for the supersonic hovercars. If you die, I'm not going to visit your funeral for making such a stupid life choice. It'd be the best death ever. Uh, anyways, uh, I've got a giant jet engine worth of vehicle to maneuver through an entire state of Wyoming. Bye. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 944. Story number one. Interspecies Diplomacy for Dummies, written by C-SPAN. The following is an excerpt from Interspecies Diplomacy for Dummies. Names and measurements have been converted to local approximations. So, you've seen a human cycling through a nearby airlock or on a passenger manifest of your next flight, and are now frantically scrolling through the sky in an attempt to avoid accidentally provoking an interspecies war. Good for you! If you carefully obey the following instructions, you can avoid the ire of a highly militant race, and maybe even make some new friends. As always, reference Appendix Q to check if your species' basic biology is fundamentally incompatible with humans. Of particular note are the Vitvrasya, as their resulting explosion caused by direct contact between the human and the Vesvras will not instantly kill both parties, but also cause significant property damage. Please be aware that humans only die once, and death is very important in human culture. Getting a human is considered a major breach of etiquette. Humans are not a hive mind. Do not assume one human knows something simply because another human knows it. Despite their relatively small population size, humans do not personally know every other human. Humans are capable of feeling emotions and acting irrationally. Try to keep humans calm if possible. Humans are significantly smaller than galactic average volume. They make up for this with their incredible density and are close to the galactic average mass. Do not attempt to pick up a human. Despite their diminutive stature, most humans are not children. Human children are even smaller than adult humans and are often accompanied by adults. However, due to the large size disparities between individual humans, height is not a reliable indicator of age since most adult humans will become upset if treated like children. It is best to treat any human as an adult, regardless of size. Humans almost always wear protective or decorative clothing. Do not attempt to remove a human's clothing. Humans will sometimes remove parts of their own clothing. This is not a cause for alarm. A human removing all of the clothing is a cause for alarm. Humans will not always wear the same clothes, and multiple humans can wear the same clothing at different times. Apparel is not a reliable method to distinguish between humans. In order to distinguish between humans, examine the structure of the area containing sensory organs, as humans are unable to change this without medical intervention. Humans communicate primarily through sound modulation, 
Although gestures, muscle twitches, body position changes and coloration, scent location, relative position, and apparel can and all convey meaning. Additionally, human language is highly idiomatic and self-referential. Unless your translator is of very high quality, it is unlikely that you will be able to extract all meaning from a human communication. This is okay in most contexts. If a human says something utterly nonsensical, it is likely safe to ignore it. Only ask for clarification when absolutely necessary, as repeated requests can lead to irritation or anger. Humans are capable of deceit and often deceive others when communicating. Only point out deceit when you believe it will cause significant harm, as minor deceits plays a role in human speech and is considered normal. Human society is complex, consisting primarily of intricate social hierarchies. However, it is virtually impossible to tell where an individual human stands within a said hierarchy. If you encounter multiple humans, do not assume the largest human is in charge. Do not assume that the human with the most colorful clothing is in charge. It is best to treat all humans as equally important. If a human tells you that they are more important than other humans, they are most likely not. If you are unsure if a human is lying about their social status, ask another human for clarification. Human society and culture, while more militant than that of many others, does not involve ritual combat on a regular basis. It is highly unlikely that you will ever need to fight a human, and if you do, something has gone grievously wrong. Humans are deceptively strong despite their small stature, and many humans have at least some combat training. It is advised that you retreat and alert local authorities if a human is attacking you. If this is not an option, humans do not have an exoskeleton, and as such are particularly susceptible to sharp objects. Good luck. Human food is likely toxic to you. This is normal. Human food is also likely toxic to humans. While this is significantly less normal, it is a cause for undue alarm. Do not attempt to stop a human from eating human food. You are under no obligation to accept human food if it is offered and we recommend you politely decline for safety reasons. If a human asks you for some of your food, you are not obliged to give it to them, although it is considered polite if you do. Only attempt to discourage a human from eating food of another species if you believe the food will prove immediately fatal to the human. If human is insistent on eating something, let them. They know more about their biology than you do. Humans will occasionally enter periods of reduced cognitive function. This can be triggered by consuming certain substances, by extended periods of consciousness, or severe nutritional or environmental deficits. Reduced cognition is not a cause for alarm if a human appears otherwise healthy and is often deliberately induced by humans for unknown reasons. Reduced cognition can cause slurred speech, loss of coordination, and impaired judgment. While in a state of reduced cognition, humans may declare their undying love for you, challenge you to single combat, or begin to talk about politics. Nothing a human says while in a state of reduced cognition should be trusted. It is best to treat a human in a state of reduced cognition as you would a young child. Again, do not pick up the human. If a human is acting in an excessively violent manner during periods of reduced cognition, Contact local authorities. 
Depending on the severity of their impairment, humans may not remember their actions during the period of reduced cognition. This is normal and not a cause for concern. As a general rule, avoid prolonged interactions with humans. They are highly varied and diverse species, and while the above information is considered best practice, it is not applicable in all circumstances. The more you interact with humans, the more likely you are to incite an incident accidentally. This guide is not legal advice and is not responsible for any injury that occurs as a result of the advice provided. This guide is intended as a brief summary of the behavior of many species and should not be treated as a complete and comprehensive guide to any of them. A more thorough analysis of human biology and behavior can be found in our sister guide, Your Human and You, what to do if a human has decided that you're their friend and refuses to leave you alone. End of chapter. Story number two. Heroes, written by Haluria. I thought I knew what a hero was. I thought a hero was a conqueror, a warrior, a legend killer. I thought heroes were those who stared death in the eye and charged. I thought heroes were those who fought with a fervor so intense that it could be considered maniacal. My heroes were of the sorts of empires. My heroes would go on their great conquest, decimating the enemy and bringing our nation to glory. My heroes would bear their weapons against the enemy, and against all odds, they would prevail. But in this age, I stand corrected. When our great empire faced its end, it was not at the desires of our enemies or at the attacks of our adversaries. We were not defeated in war. How could we be when we had our great heroes? Our empire was nearly destroyed by the wombs of the fates, by a virus so potent that it could infect nearly every species in our empire. Our hospitals were overrun, our economy faced collapse, and then, like a light that shines down from the heavens, radiating hope, the enemy, humanity, they came like angels from the void, not of war, but of mercy. In our darkest hour, they arrived. They chose to ignore the war that had plagued our peoples for generations, and instead strive to remove the plague from our galaxy. They strode into our cities, carrying not guns, but bandages, not bombs, but medicine. After all the anger we had shown them, they showed us love. They showed us kindness. They showed us mercy. They showed us what it meant to be a hero. A hero is not someone who kills, but heals. A hero is not someone who brings death, but life. Not destruction, but creation. A hero is someone who stares death in the eye, not on the battlefield, but in a hospital. A hero is someone who brings a bandage to a knife fight. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 945 The Artifact, written by Allegoric The Tolvari Armada dropped out of ward, squadron after countless squadron, at its massive heart of the Exculptor, jagged and angular and stark, 
their Sarida allies warped in alongside them, their bulbous spherical swarms writhing in and out of formation. Then came the mighty Mosbur, the phalanxes of armored assault barges formed along parallel ranks beside the others. The Cam and the Pero stood tentacle to mandible with them, others too. The grandest fleet ever assembled, tens of thousands of war vessels, dripping menace and death, silhouetted against the beautiful glow of the dim red stars. A great alliance of the mightiest of races, brought together in epic bloody campaigns of legions that had devastated entire systems and that historians were right about for millennia. All for this. They could see it now, the price that so much blood had been spilled to acquire. The artifact. Grand overlord of the Protectorate of Infinite Sun Sekarak. He who was mentioned only in whispers. Lord of High Marshal of the Assembly of High Marshals. First Primus of the Legions of Blood slammed down his fist in triumph. Savoring the moment of glory. He called up the scans to gaze upon it one more time, the flickering displays illuminating the dim, steamy green of his command bridge. It hung in the void, a stupendous oval of grey metal, tens of sovereigns wide, broad enough to swallow a whole fleet. The region had its center shimmered and glowed a translucent blue and jagged yellow-white arcs of charge played across its outer structure flickering amongst the nodes and bulges and antenna at the studded metallic ring. Wondrous technology, fantastical technology, a creation of the old ones, a device far beyond the wildest imaginations of the greatest minds. A portal. Soon it would be theirs, a bridge that could carry them anywhere they decide beyond the mere few parsecs at a time that the tribes could manage, and then bring them home again when they were done. The whole galaxy had their feet rich, ripe, and exposed, theirs for the taking. He clenched his fist and laughed deeply, a trace, signals on the detectors. What was this? Ships at the portal. No doubt, thieving interlopers trying to salvage a few treasures and preparing to make a run for it. Such impudence would not be allowed. Such larceny could not be tolerated. His minions fine-tuned their arrays, focusing in and analyzing the data and feeding it up into his displays. There were five of them, little buds of things, tiny gray dots. Compact, one crew each. Streamlined and winged for atmospheric flight, dotted with clusters of thrusters for vacuum maneuvering, narrow projections jutting out from tiny surfaces. Pitiful! <laughs> Pitiful! Turn them to dust, he ordered. Mud minions, he called us mud minions! The linguistic database struggled with that one, got it in the end though. Earthlings! Jago's laughter for the concert. <laughs> Earthlings. So I said, uh, is there a, like, a time rift to the 1950s or something? You want me to take you to my leader? 
So I pulled it out and I showed him. Should have seen the look on his face. That's humans to you, laughing boy, I told him. Humans! Sniggers and laughter. Your damn college stories, Blue Four, said Lieutenant Poole. She waited until the snickering had died down. Okay, all adults again. Good. I've run scans and it looks like they're mostly using standard stuff. Though, they've optimized a lot of systems. Electron-bounded hulls, matter disruptors, plasma force incinerators, repulsor vortexes, multi-phasic targeting. They're up to type 4 shielding too. Bioplasmic relays, integrated command and control. Got that? Yes. They answered in bored tones, almost as one. Bull checked each razor in turn. Standard procedure. A diagnostic appearing along with a few external views of each craft. All weapons primed, all systems optimal. Blue 2, I thought I told you to get that thing cleaned, she scolded, looking at the stains on the hull. Jonesy mumbled something back, probably best that she couldn't make it out. Okay, patent Alta 3, prepare to engage. 3, 2, um, wait, what? The exasperation in the lieutenant's voice was plain to hear. Squeezed out too much nutrition paste. Ew, it's on the panel. Give me a moment, just wiping the projector. Some scrunching noises, then ready. The lieutenant closed her eyes and took a deep, calming breath. Are you done, Blue Three? No pause, no answer. She swore she could hear chewing. Breathe again. Good. Prepare to engage. Three, two, one, engage. The little craft streaked away from the gargantuan structure. A cloud of starfighters, sleek, purposeful, and malicious, thousands upon thousands of them surged forward, accelerating away from the Yamada on pillar of flames. They closed the range, and those at the fore of the tide engaged the razors, locking onto their targets and weaving and firing as they fell upon them. The bulk of the horde fixed their navigators onto the huge and awesome relic, each competing with each other to see who would be first to the artifact, to be the one to claim the honor of its capture. Good, good, crowed the Grand Overlord, rubbing his talons together as he surveyed these scans. In the briefest of flashes, those starfighters at the fall were gone, no trace remaining. The five gray specks sped on the flight leaders directed more of their groups to deal with the threat. Hundreds of starfighters engaged. The five gray tracers span and spiraled amid the swirling mass of fire and flashes of fury. And then, nothing. The starfighters had ceased to exist. But still, the five little craft pushed on. Enough foolery, roared the commanders. Enough play. They would be taught a lesson. Each one of the mass of starfighters launched a swarm of missiles, then together turned the detector displays a solid sheet of green-white, and then they began blasting their main phases too. Code words and commands from their formations piled in as they swooped and unleashed deadly attacks. The incoming fire connected, blast after devastating blast and shock after devastating shock, tearing and ripping and shielding and protection. A flash a dazzling in its intensity, dimming, then growing into a malevolent glowing sphere as wide as a planet. Another, a little way off, then another, and another further back, 
And finally, another. They are dealt with. Let the demise be a warning to others. The Grand Overlord broadcast to the assembling throng. The five senses' blinding blasts faded and dimmed. He waited for a few moments more for the reports to filter back in. Nothing. No communication. No updates. Just crackling static. He brought the scans up on his display. The starfighters were gone. All of them. A constellation of irradiated fragments glittered in the void where they had been. The detector sensed five little gray specks surging forward towards the Amada. A rain of directed beams fell upon the lone razor as a cloud of battle spheres surrounded its position. The little craft vanished into a glowing, iridescent ball of energy that flickered between deep red and bright yellow and a ghostly blue. The comma crackled. Oh my god, Sam! Hold position! Hold position! What? Why? The pitted and scarred battle spheres clustered inward, crowding their tiny foe and colliding with one another as they jostled to bring their weapons to bear. In their midst, three slowed its movement and wove and spiraled and jinked. Um, Blue Five, uh, my shielding is good, but I can just sit here all day. Uh, you want to clue me in? Maneuvering to your position, replied Mouse. Almost there! A battle sphere erupted, caught by the fire of other vessels behind it. The shockwave and debris smashed into other nearby craft. The glare of that center of their aim flickered through the shades of electric blue and into the ultraviolet. Concussions and ripples played through it, and rolls of energy rolled and sparkled off its surface. Mouse, are you looking to burn out my thermal sink? Just a few more moments. Mouse? There! Oh, the colors are so pretty. That's gotta be a lovely picture. Sam sighed, shook her head, then set her inversion matrices. The lattice work activated, and one by one the battle spear crumpled, collapsed, and then exploded into clouds of shards and atoms. Blue leader, this is gold leader. We're beginning our attack run. Lieutenant Poole glanced at a data display. Gold leader? What the hell are you on about now? Blue four was racing down towards the mighty Talvari battlecruiser. The bulbous nose, armored hull, and bulky drive pods were studded with turrets that rippled with flashes of fire as they tracked and targeted the incoming razor. Its escorting destroyers, barbets, bristling with barrels and swirling amongst the jagged armored plates, frantically maneuvered to get into a better defensive position. Blasts of energy played out, flashing round and enveloping the little craft in the incandescent wrath. I got a problem here. Yeah, go. More batteries locked and poured fire onto the pluming vessel, the destroyers were within range now, and blasting away with everything they had. I can hold it! Jago! No, I'm alright. Ah! A massive white blast and a vast scatter of debris erupted as the razor smashed into the upper hull of the battlecruiser. The defensive fire slowed. Radio static. Silence. Blue fall... A vast cloud of debris blasted out from the belly of the huge warship. One of the tripods began flickering on and off sporadically, sending the battlecruiser into a slow, lazy tumble. The turrets and batteries on the wounded vessel and its escorts opened up again in a frenzy of fire. The communicator crackled again. Did you get it? asked Jago. 
Reality seemed to bend around the doomed battlecruiser as the implosion charges he had dropped within its heart detonated, twisting and shredding it and dragging its structure into the short-lived singularities they created. Yet what? A flash as bright as a star erupted from within the warship, spreading out in an expanding sphere to engulf the destroyers that surrounded it. Their shields flickering in the spectrum as they overloaded and then a brief brighter glows showed within the expanding globe of energy as the hulls were torn to molecules. The quote from a movie, an old one, but a classic. You know, the series where they made four before they made one. The grey blips wove and dodged and swooped, diving in into the foes and blasting them into so much wreckage. Cruisers adrift with their backs broken. Frigates turned inside out, battleships and carriers mangled into twisted multed knots of girders. Transports and barges ripped apart, destroyers and patrol craft and freighters reduced to flecks of metal. All met the same fate, smashed and torn and blown to fragments. We cannot permit this device to fall into their hands, raged the Grand Overlord. It would be a crime for them to possess the mysteries, the awesome power of the Ancient Ones. If we cannot have it, then we shall deny them. He leaned forward over his tactical table, focusing on the five soft grey blips that were displaying on it. The Serida was smashed, the Musboo swept away, the others too. Shattered wreckage and clouds of hot gases, their only markers. Only the huddled core of his own force remained, and the carapace ships of the Perra too, far out on the fringe of the system. The sniveling cowards had stood off, watching to see how things transpired from the start of the battle. Four of the grey blips retreated to positions close to the artifact, while one surged forward at an incredible velocity, zapping past the remnants of the Armada towards the bug flotillas of the Perro. He felt certain satisfaction that they would soon feel the pain that his more loyal allies had suffered. One by one, the sleek, segmented pair of vessels turned and fled, rotating at maximum speed and selecting any vector that they could find in their frantic haste to warp out. The single grey bip slowed, making no effort to intercept their honorless squadrons as they scuttled away. He had been abandoned. The Grand Overlord bellowed to his ancestors at the injustice of it. So be it. His demise would be glorious. The Talvari would speak of this moment for generations to come. Set a collision course for the artifact, he shouted. He felt the trembling through the deck plates as the engines of the Exculpator came on and it oh so slowly began to accelerate. Its remaining escort of storm cruisers and armed frigates formed a defensive cloud around it, interlocking and overlapping their shields to protect the huge charge. Fire everything! Every last piece of ordnance! The single grey blip at the aft slowed, halted its progress, and rotated, pointing its nose towards the distant artifact. In an instant, it went from a matched vector to a blur that his detectors could barely sense. The sculptor shuddered heavily. There were five grave lips at the gigantic relic. The massive core ship began to roll. A hole ran right through it, half the sovereign wide. A perfectly cylindrical warp tunnel punched through from the stern to bow. 
The shredded drives and power plants began to erupt, fading and exploding and setting off chain reactions among stored munitions and powered equipment. Zakarak's last perception was the command deck's display screen, melting and bending but still showing his outgoing fire targeted onto the Great Ring. But his final blows were striking an invisible barrier, a wall of force, seemingly anchored on the five grey specks that lay between his position and the artifact. It was utterly undamaged. No! The gore ship exploded, consuming its clustered escorts in a tumult of destruction. He roared at the deities in frustration and rage as his command bridge erupted in a disintegrating subatomic fury. The razors held their position in front of the portal. Bluetooth, what are you doing? asked the lieutenant. I said defensive grid, not a full speed at the creepy crawlies. Jonesy mumbled something unintelligible. It was probably best that she couldn't hear him. They watched as a few battered survivors of the Grand Armada limped into war, free as fast as the drives could carry them. They let them go. There was no point in being malicious. They weren't attacking. They were carrying with them the tales of what had transpired. Jago peered out of the Razor's cockpit window at the gigantic portal hanging in the void. Lieutenant, he asked, do you think they know that we built this antique piece of junk? Then, our story. Tales from Outer Space 946. Story number one. The Most Terrible Predator. Written by Rosie013. There was something not quite right with the humans, or more specifically, their claims of being descendant from predators. During their introduction to the Galactic Council, they made many fabulous and impressive claims. There was absolutely no doubt that they were suitable for membership. However, some of these claims were just a little too good to be true. Just a touch too, uh, fantastical to be real. None of their member species blamed them, of course, who wouldn't talk up their species' achievements with the entire known galaxy watching? It wouldn't be the first time a species tried to pull a fast one over on the council. So while the politicians nodded and applauded where appropriate, behind the scenes, many different intelligence agencies worked hard to find proof of these claims, or at least evidence for or against them. None more so than the claim that the humans were endurance predators. They simply lacked the biological tools amongst the predatory sapiens for that fact to be accepted at face value. The internal digestion biology had been confirmed. They were in a rare category of true omnivores, but that alone didn't make them predators. It wasn't unknown for a species to be scavengers or even specialized in stealing kills from other predators native to their home world. No claws, no fangs, no natural camouflage. Oh, and they were pacifist herd creatures. That's not typical predatory behavior either. So when Gazip spotted what he thought was a human actively hunting without knowing it was being observed, it was a big deal to the intelligence groups. Humans had allowed the council observers onto their hunting trips, but these had reeked of flashy showmanship and false bravado. Nor had these trips been successful enough to provide for more than a few humans at a time, let alone a decent-sized population. Unobserved, the council could get a real insight into the human predatory behaviors and methods. 
if they truly even existed. This particular human was on the outskirts of one of the human colonies, just one of the many settlements being quietly watched while the negotiations to join the council went on. It stood knee-deep in a body of water, dressed strangely and with a box of tools of some sort nearby. In both of its hands, it held what first glance was an overlarge version of a combustion weapon that the humans had so loved. As it made thrashing gestures with the firearm, Zip noticed that it was not suitable for a projectile, as it bent one-third along its length. As the human began some actions at its base, reloading perhaps, when out of nowhere a small fish leapt out from the river and hung in midair. The humans hadn't declared that they had any kind of kinetic technology. This would force a revise of their military might, not to mention questioning why they were conceding such a high-level technology, or using it for something as trivial as hunting, of all things. As Zip got closer, it became clear that the firearm was in fact a simple stick of sorts, and that there was no kinetic technology as the fish was suspended from a near-invisible line of thread. He knew at the other end of the live feed that he was relaying, the office teams would be releasing a huge exhalation of breath in relief as a false positive. Even with these revelations, there was still much to be learned from the human hunting methods. The human had taken a fish off the line and was tending to his tools when he did the most unexpected of all things. He dropped it, free from capture. The fish bled quickly and successfully. Nixip looked on in surprise as the clumsy human stared into the depths into where his meal had disappeared, with a disappointed, thoughtful look. This human clearly wasn't a great hunter of his people. He persevered anyway, throwing the small simulated insect observed to be on the end of the thread into the water over and over again in the hunt for more fish. He failed mostly, but occasionally tricked a fish into capture. And every time, after stopping to measure how many meals that particular fish would probably make, its thrashing freed itself from the human's clumsy grip, falling into the knee-deep water below. It took all of Zizip's willpower to not laugh out loud. At one point, the frustrated human even made a move that looked like it would take a bite out of his particularly large-bodied specimen. But it too escaped unharmed before the deed was done. It just got funnier and funnier. No matter the fish, big or small, silver or brown, they all escaped to safety. As daylight began to dwindle, the human climbed out of the water, sorted his tools, and left. Zizib took a few extra moments to compose himself before heading back to the observation post, even though it had all been recorded for the analysts to pore over. His report was still needed, and it would say exactly two things. Firstly, yes, humans were confirmed predators. Most importantly, they were the most terrible predators the galaxy had ever known. End of story. Story number two. Fire in the Hole, written by Rosie013. Gorag looked across the cafeteria table at the smugly grinning human. The latest bet had to be a trap. The last few bets had been way too easy. Now the hairless herbivore was suggesting double or nothing. It wasn't just the human's stupid face, but its eyes seemed to be smiling. Definitely a trap. But what else was Gorak to do? 
He was representing his entire homeworld here. As the latest species to be indoctrinated into the galactic community, his kind was still new, untested. As a death worlder, it was his responsibility to not only make a good and peaceful first impressions, but to unsubtly remind the others that his people were stronger in almost every way. So naturally, when the herb of all species had challenged him to an eating competition, he had hardly said no. It would be a good way to prove dominance and get a little food-based cultural exchange with this bold individual. Human, it called itself. Did it then smiled at him, a facial gesture that clearly meant the same thing between our people, and announced that it was also a death world. <laughs> no tusks, no claws, and the very soft-looking skin. There was no way that it could back up its claim. The challenge was personal now. He would beat the stupid human in his own game so hard that it would be begging for mercy. But it hadn't happened. The food had come quick and fast, and the contestants taking turns to introduce the other to the food native to their respective homeworlds by sharing the dish. Gorag would never admit it, but he had actually lost count of how much the two of them had eaten. It had been quite an experience, and a sizable crowd of onlookers had gathered. Even if he lost now, his people would have gained some measure of respect from those watching his feats. He wouldn't lose, of course. He had nearly lost the contents when eating the heavily solanine-laced tuber from the human diet, but had managed to push through. He had gotten his own back when the human hesitated at the traditional dish of Zingabayan, or ginger, had called it after a tentative sniff. Despite its ridiculous claim, the human was admittedly tough. Finally, the human had declared that it was full and double or nothing on one last challenge. A little fruit for dessert. Something called a Carolinan Reaper. A small, red, pleasant-smelling fruit so small that it was almost a berry. Trap or not, Gorag would not lose now. His pride and wallet couldn't afford it at this point. He tossed the fruit into his tusk maw and he began to chew. It burnt! It felt like he had eaten a hot coal. No! Put his tongue on red-hot steel, like a million needles in his face, like chewing on broken glass. Without warning, he began to cry. He tried swallowing the horrible fruit anyway. The damned human had fed him capsaicin, of all things. My kind of maniac species willingly ate the stuff. The crowd was going wild some watching in shock at all, but most were enthusiastically cheering him on. There were even medics waiting to the sidelines now. It belatedly occurred to him that he might not be the first person to try human food. The realization spurred his anger. He had been walked right into this. He would show them all and push through. After a few long, agonizing, burning minutes in his own personal purgatory, Gorog opened his mouth to show the human that he had won. The human just smiled and said to meet him back here in a cycle's time, before pushing away his untouched plate and getting up to leave. Gorak angrily grabbed a hold of the hairless herbivore and demanded his winnings. He had gone through hell to win, and there was no way the human could just slip away without paying. The human smiled again, but something about it this time sent off warning bells in Gorak's head. The human carefully explained that this was only the first half of the Carolina Reaper's effects, 
and that the second half would be experienced soon at the other end of the digestive tract. The crowd fell silent. As the tears flowed forth anew at the realization, Greg knew that he had lost to his fellow Deathwolder. The dastardly human had never intended to eat his own death fruit. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 947 The Four, written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot I remember them, the humans. Skinny creatures, only four limbs. We still have statues somewhere in the dusty edges of our history hives. We disliked them at first, filled with their stupid enthusiasm for the great dark, ignoring fears of others. Worse, never even noticing the dangers as they smile at the universe that was trying to kill them. I miss them. The day I left their system to birth, the day they sent me home, this is what they must have felt. A voice pulled him back into the tedium of genocide. High Commander of the Venance has broken the lines at Sector 18. Our reinforcements are not ready yet. The commander nodded. Send them to Sector 17 as soon as they can move. 18 has fallen. If I've learned anything in this cursed war, it is not to reinforce Vadia. He watched as the crewmen grew older in front of his eyes. He kept his voice flat, compassionate, as he watched the man's scales dull and taken an edge of white that would one day, if he survived, marked him as a veteran. Ah, your family out there. The silence confirmed it. The tightly held pain evident in his soldier's face. I'm sorry. I can't send more men to die if I can't hold the planet. I hoped that they made the evacuation. In his mind, he knew almost to the minute what was happening. Once the venoms broke the line in the system, then the moons would burn, then anything left firing from orbit. Then the feeding would begin, seeding attacks on civilian centers, followed by endless bugs born from the wreckage filling the streets. Then the bugs grew and attacked everything, even each other. Before the end, they would have killed everything that moved, and then their fecking ships would land. Some call, some pheromone would summon the bugs, and they would fight and kill each other on the path to the ships. Those that survived would become the venants, and then they stripped what was left of the world, always leaving with more warriors and bigger fleets, and then they went looking for the next target. Sector 17. Another crewman hesitated and looked up. Sir, I have a signal. It's marked as personal for you. Sir, it's from, uh, Sector 7. The crew on his bridge stirred with that addition. Sector 7, they all remembered that one. He tried to show nothing, but you don't expect ghosts to call you from the howls. He looked at his crew. Probably a damn satellite uh, that remembers me. I probably owe them money. I'll take it in my cabin. Begin rerouting our supplies to Sector 17 and get the numbers up on the evacuation. Now! The crew returned to work as they tried to steal their people from the jaws of hell. The cabin was quiet. Just a small beeping noises that he could never identify or stop. One day, he was going to rip this room apart, find them, and then go after the jerks that put them there. He knew he was avoiding a huge everything. His people were dying, and now he had a call from the dead. He opened the message. It was a human. 
Before he could stop himself, he paused it, suddenly back in his memories. The humans had held Sector 7. The humans were Sector 7. Their beautiful, murderous worlds, their carefully cared for predators. They had been so proud to rebuild it, taking all the industrial production out into the openness of space and doing what they called rewilding. He had been terrified when they showed him what they had built, but he could remember the joy in the ambassador's face as he'd shown him an island so full of what they called uh, snakes that no human could ever set foot on it and live. The human had told him that it was a seriously cool. He could think of no other race that reveled so much in the diversity of life, even life that was happy to kill them, as the humans were. Then Sector 7 had fallen, and the humans had perished, all their work burned as another affront to the silent gods. They insisted he leave. They had given his people every weapon and ship design that they had ever created, and went to fight in a determined rage that was made him weep. I had watched the fleets leave, the mix of efficient and well-built fleet combined with whatever they could throw together in the last days. So many of their people had been lost already, trying to hold the line, trying to keep the enemy far from the home. They had inflicted terrible damage, but they moved but one sector against dozens. This was the end. We were many systems far from the human space, and uh, in my youth, I thought us immortal. I felt sorry for the humans, but it never occurred to me that this would happen to us. It was like some dismal hollow play. We hadn't sent help. We had done nothing for these people except let them die in a war that we thought far from our borders. We had stayed on the edge of the home system, hoping against hope as the human fleets had torn the Venons apart. Until the next ten Venons fleet, grown from the stolen life of Sector 6, had arrived. The humans had burned their own worlds. They had told him that they would leave nothing. But I didn't understand. Not until that moment. Their broken fleets fled, lost in the dark forever. Every moon, every planet exploded in a raging fire that nearly took me with it. They burned their own sun rather than let it feed the monsters. And now I had a voicemail from them. He hit the play button and he clenched himself to hear the plea for aid, some cry for help from those beautiful, doomed creatures. He would explain when he met them in the house, assuming the bastards hadn't tamed all the demons. He recognized a human, a junior aide to the ambassador on that trip so long ago. His memory was fogged by time as he struggled for a name. It probably didn't matter. Captain, or whatever your rank you hold now, I assume your people have suffered accelerated promotion as we have. We are alive and we are coming. Sectors 7, 3, 4, and 6 are back in our hands. We are fighting for 5 right now and we are winning. I know you are a hell of a long way from us right now. But know this. We are coming. We are on the way. Hold the lines. I am attaching a new ship designs. Cheap, faster, and better. Build them and hold. Remember that island. Then one that no human could stand in without dying. Turns out, it was us. 
Earth was a snake island for these feckers. Hold the line while we burn these bastards back to bedrock. I will try and open up a line to your command if we break through far enough. Yours was the only signal I can remember. The human looked up, even as he smiled from the screen. We got this. Keep your people alive. Gear up. Ambassador Killian, out. He had contacted his high command almost in tears that day. That message from the dead and the damned had given them the one weapon that nothing can defeat. He had given them hope. That we could survive. That the humans were coming. That the Venance would fall. And that we would live. We lost Sector 17. Then 16. But we held them at 15. And we didn't let go. Our new ships bought Howl under the Venance. And then they recognized the tech. Falling back in fear. We began to burn them, as the humans say, back to bedrock. Today my fleet will meet the humans at Sector 11, and we will crush the Venants from our space. The humans tell me they will fight on, seeking out the birth world of these creatures, and burn it down. I didn't understand what the ambassador told me until I had a time to study their history. A rare pastime in this war. They intend to raise the cities and sow their fields with salt. Of his expression, I don't expect these creatures to trouble us after today. But that is for another time. He laid out his plan to the captains, those white-shelled veterans of every death, those that had followed his determination, that tactics that gave him a rare smile. Today, the war would end. Today, they would turn the horror back on the enemy. He had made it clear that he expected no survivors. If it took a battleship to kill the last of these things, then he would pay that price. This would end, and he would never sail in space again. He looked at the captains, most of whom who had not been around for endless defeats. The good ones asked themselves why and acted accordingly. The rest just burned for revenge for the ones lost. He opened comms and said all that he thought needed to be said. Fleet, arm all systems. Today we take back all we have lost and leave only the burning ghosts of those that dared to take it from us. Vengeance is ours today. They fell upon the ragged remains of the once mighty Venance with a ferocity that matched their hatred, their pain, their loss. Today, the Venice would fall and never rise again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 948. Story number one. Iron Angels, written by Krakenson. When we first encountered the humans, we thought so little of them, with their frail, small bodies, and to our species, limited lifespans of only roughly 100 cycles. Yet, at the same time, it was that frailty that piqued our curiosity. For you see, the first human exploration ship stumbled into our territory all those cycles ago. They had only colonized 15 star systems. It was a crude ship, seemingly held together by nothing more than the fastness that held the bulkheads together, all of which looked to fail at any moment. Yet, they had flung themselves out into the stars, knowing full well, it turns out, that their vessels could have a catastrophic failure, 
and their own organic bodies would cease function near instantaneously. When pressed on their other vessels, such as merchant ships, the humans on board smile and simply said, Oh, uh, those are far safer. Far safer? Oh, they were better constructed. Hardier, yes. Our first envoys to their space noted that their merchants and transport ships were far safer class of vessel. And, of course, their military navy. But that is for a later subject. You see, the human had reached the peak of their natural evolution nearly 6,000 cycles ago. They had not had any drastic or genetic mutations to further their species along by natural selection of traits. No, the humans overcame their limitations not through natural selection, but through technology. Take their industrial manufacturing and construction. Despite their frail bodies, all natural limits of endurance, which is considerable given their small stature, they still sought to overcome the limits that nature endowed them with. So they create what they call mechs. An odd term, but apt to describe what they had built. A machine in which a human interfaces with basic controls of the machine via a surface-level neural link to give fine control over the limbs of these bipedal machines and its arms, and they use their four other limbs for more general motion. This has allowed them to build wonders, massive city clusters housing their species, great factories that build their star-drive engines and hulls, lift and transport large quantities of material throughout the industrial zones, dig massive foundations for their launch sites. They have, through ingenuity, told the universe that natural selection does not oblige them any longer. This is a unique aspect of human species. Even a cursory study of their own history would tell you that when, in a human parlance, they were backed into a corner, they became far more innovative and far more dangerous. There had not been 20 cycles since their acceptance into the Galactic Republic when the Xeraxi attacked the Republic. Their territories and star systems were the first to be sieged along the front on the west edge of the Republic. While the others, older races, prepared their fleets, they also prepared for the acceptance of human refugees fleeing the aggressor. They were our friends, but they never came. No, backed into a corner, they innovated. Crudely at first, they had simply strapped large caliber primitive slug throws onto the arms of their mechs. Well, not, as the Geth would put it, a combat efficient machine. It was hardier than the ground tanks and far larger with far more armor. While they still lost ground, they started to inflict massive casualties upon the Xerexi in their ground engagements. They were able to protect their core holdings surrounding their homeworld. Their navy adapted as well, as anyone who has studied human history will also note their propensity for armed conflict and how quickly they can adapt to a changing battlefield. But amidst the fighting, the siege of their star systems that they were able to refine these crude, now battle mechs, building larger ones, with far deadlier weapons that the other races had begun supplying them, and the weapons that they scavenged off the dead Xeraxi. They made them faster, more armored, to the point where the Xeraxi armored division could be halted by only twelve of these monstrosities. Only a year into the siege of the Republic, the humans, these frail, small creatures, were the only ones to eventually stem the loss of territory. Then they pushed back. They adapted their fleets to delivering these terrifying machines of war to the surface of worlds with great efficiency, 
the military could land 50 of these machines within moments of entering orbit. And unlike the landing craft and war machines of the Greth, they were ready to fight the moment they set foot on the ground. It was slow at first, but as they recaptured their lost systems, reclaimed their interstellar infrastructure, it went from a crawl to a sprint. Our worlds had been on the western border of the Republic. Our worlds were overrun. Our people enslaved, beaten. I remember the whispers of my fellows. The humans are coming, and their iron angels will free us. I remember that day when the sky lit a fire, and from the clouds descended what we now know as their orbital dropships. I remember seeing the huge bipedal machines stepping out, and upon taking fire from the Xerexi infantry, turning and simply opening fire. It only fired once. The Xerxi infantry vanished, and in a terrible flash of light and noise, the entire Xerxi infantry division was simply gone. And the Iron Angels spoke to us. You are slaves no longer. You are free. The humans had come. Their iron angels would free us all. End of story. Story number two. Perhaps we were mistaken. Written by Recon 1342. We'd been drifting for nearly ten cycles, slowly coasting through the void between systems. Our supplies were rapidly dwindling, and with only backup power to run the ship's systems, it was starting to look as the Intrepid was fated to be our tomb. We had been on a standard sensor run across the Orion arm of the galaxy when the FTL drive malfunctioned, spinning us out of warp and throwing us into hostile space. The sector we found ourselves in was lawless, frontier space in every sense of the word. After the navigator had gotten us a fix, my fur nearly blanched. Not only were we in a frontier space, we were only a handful of light years from the Sol system, home to the United Terran Federation. Everyone knows about the Terrans, a savage species of bipeds hailing from a violent rock that could, and often would, kill the unaware. Their first contact with the galaxy at large had been a bloody one, nearly resulting in the extinction of the race that discovered them. Slavers or not, genocide seemed a bit drastic. Ever since then, their system and the surrounding areas formed a de facto no-fly zone. Nobody, and I mean nobody, wanted anything to do with them. So there we sat, my crew and I, unwilling to reach out for help. Pirates or angry Terrans were a fate worse than we currently faced. It was in this fog of dread and resignation that the Com Consul chimed, startling me out of my whirlpool of self-pity. As I pulled up the Com's request we had just received, my initial hope of possible rescue plummeted into a black gulf of my despair. We had been hailed by a Terran vessel. Oh, woe unto my poor crew and me. We'd have been better off ripped to slack by the collapsing warp bubble that put us here. Unknown vessel, this is the UTF ship Forbearance. Our scans indicate that you are adrift. Do you require assistance? A quick conference with my crew convinced me to take a chance. Perhaps these Terrans would merely imprison us, which was still the chance at life. 
It was that or be lost to the void. Even a quick death would have been a boon at this point. We only had two cycles of food left, and we had no chance of making it to an inhabited system on our own. Barbarants, this is the Alliance vessel Intrepid. Our FTL drive is disabled, and we are on a backup power. Very well, Intrepid. Stand by for FTL travel while we rig for tow. At the end of the Terran's transmission, the ship swung around so that its stern was in front of the Intrepid's prow. Two beings in void suits unspooled a truly enormous cable from their vessel and attached its security to the nose of bows. A terse transmission followed the disappearance of the void walkers into the ship. Hang on! With that, we blinked out of the interstellar space and into the orbit of a reddish planet with the prominent ice caps dotted with glittering domes. The 465th Search and Rescue Squadron welcomes you to the Sol system. We will get you docked at Ferber Station for repairs in approximately one Earth hour. Enjoy your stay. Perhaps we were mistaken about these Terrans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 949 I used to write horror stories, written by Podge Wrights. I used to write horror stories. Actually, that's not strictly accurate. I wrote horrific, pulpy, unbelievably awful stories which only individuals as depraved as myself would ever take any pleasure from reading, let alone writing. Imagine the greatest sins that you could possibly commit, something so against your own nature that it seemed an abomination from its very inception. Imagine what you could never do to even your most disliked enemies, and you have an inkling of the type of filth I wrote. My work has been banned on every world where they go in for panic box, and I've been politely advised by certain government bodies to avoid publishing my work on several planets that don't. So imagine my surprise when an actual government representative from the Office of Extra Species Affairs, no less, arrived at my doorstep with a request. In no uncertain terms, he asked me to come up with the most horrific alternate history for our planet that I possibly could. Something so sublimely awful that it would give hardened criminals nightmares. The only condition was that, in the end, it had to square up with more or less how our civilization has panned out in the modern day. Well, that just seemed fine by me. I asked him how believable it had to be. He actually blanched that, though I didn't know why at the time, and informed me it didn't need to be believable at all. In fact, the more outlandish and seemingly impossible it was, the better. Then he offered me a very sizable paycheck, told me where I could send the script, and left. Well, who was I to turn down such an interesting request? Or the money, for that matter. I powered up my slate and started to write. I really let loose, even throwing in a few scenes that would give me nightmares, at least at the time. A few weeks later, I had the first draft and touched upon very much every major world event that I could recall from the history lessons, but with the darkest imaginable twists, turns, and horrors. I submitted the piece, and it was rejected within a day. Too tame. I was told, not enough horror, not enough mindless violence. Well, at this point, I started to take things seriously. 
This was practically an affront to my professional integrity, after all. I took back the script, reworked it considerably, and resubmitted. Again, I came back with major revisions. The right direction, I said, but still too mild. The characters were too comprehensible, the violence too sedate, the overall themes too positive. I couldn't believe it at first. To my mind, this was some of my most outrageous work. But I stuck with it. Weeks passed, until at last I awoke one late afternoon to the same government rep at my door. I still wasn't getting it, apparently. He wanted to show me something that would open my eyes to what exactly it was I should be aiming for. He brought me to what amounted to a bunker annex of a high-security station somewhere I'm not allowed to say. We went through a myriad of checks, scans, and more. They mostly seemed concerned that I might be carrying any kind of recording device, or in any way of copying or transmitting data. Satisfied that I wasn't, they showed me into a room with a single book sitting on a table, surrounded by more security than I'd seen in some banks. They gave me an empty bucket and a jug of water, and left. Less than ten minutes later, I found out what the bucket was for. An hour later, I'd found out at least two more uses for it. They eventually pulled me out, raving and sick in the midst of a panic attack. They were impressed. Apparently, I'd read more of the damn thing in one sitting than most individuals could stand to know of it at all. They gave me some time to clean up, but even then, I knew what I'd read would stay with me for the rest of my life. It was made none the better for being fiction. Just knowing a mind out there could conceive of such madness was enough. When I was ready, they took me to another rumor. My handler, the guy from the Office of Extra Species Affairs, sat down opposite me and began to talk. He started talking about a new species they'd discovered and explained that they were responsible for the book. Well, said I, that species has a pretty fecked up imagination. Maybe leave them right where they are, no? That wasn't an option, he explained. They hadn't been contacted yet, but had recently discovered the quantum particle and thus would likely figure out FTL within the generation. Well then, I said, don't let them publish any more books. There I was, a victim of censorship myself, promoting the same for a fellow author. But to be honest, I was having a hard time considering whoever vomited up that garbage as a colleague. It was the most horrendous thing I'd ever read. Deaths in the millions, billions even. Nuclear energy turned into bombs, used inside atmospheres, unpopulated cities. The book described a species that invented cars before they invented computers that could safely drive them. Hell, they'd invented air travel before they invented parachutes. I'd had to check the appendage of the damn thing to find out what concepts of assault, family assault, spree killing, and genocide even were. My gods, genocide. I was an amateur. This author was in a different league entirely. And he was welcome to stay there. Why the hell did they even get me to try and match this crap in the first place, I asked. What was this? Some kind of cross-species literary pissing contest. That's where he dropped it on me. The book. It wasn't a work of fiction. 
despite incredulity by every being who had ever studied it. The damn thing was in fact an actual history of a real species. And the streets, the specking monsters, were about to break out of their own system and start wandering around actual, habitable, civilized star systems. The whole thing, the frankly ludicrous notion of getting me to write a horrific alternative to our own history, was part of some grand first contact scheme the Conclave had cooked up. They had me write it because they were going to present it to the species as an actual history, in the hopes that they believed it and think that they were dealing with a species capable of the same kind of crap that they were. All of this because, the thinking went, if they knew what comparative wimps we were, we'd be next. The next fecking genocide they'd attempt. Actually, they already had a word for it. Xenocide. The wiping out of alien races. These feckers hadn't even met an alien race yet, and they already had a vocabulary in place for killing every last one of us. Crap like that really put the wrongs of our kind into perspective. What was one infamous lunatic accidentally pushing two people to their deaths while fleeing an incorrect change incident in the light of the existence of something like nerve gas? This comparison in particular was fresh in my mind as the centennial memorial service for the Vonnegurk massacre had just been the month before. Anyway, I bugged right out of that bunker. No way I was going to be involved in that crazy plan. And no way would it work in the first place. A species like that would smell the fake a mile off. Then probably eat whoever presented it to them. I can't believe I just wrote that. A line about one sentient eating another. I could have gotten a whole book out of that. Back when I was writing. Do you know they have a word for eating a member of their own species? Cannibalism. It was apparently common enough that they needed a word for it. I'm sorry, but if you didn't want to know that, you should have quit a paragraph back. So, uh, like I said, I used to write horror. After that incident, I backed up everything I had, which was not a lot, and hightailed it for the far side of the galaxy. The way I see it, it's only a matter of time until these feckers get out, and I don't see any plan involving telling them that we can measure up to the sheer vulgar insanity padding out. So I fled. And you should too. Oh, and one last piece of advice. If anyone ever hands you a book called A Brief History of Earth, don't read it. You'll spend the rest of your life checking around every corner for humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 950. Story number one. 700 Unexpected Bioweapons. Written by Dragonson04 My people, the Ogno, are the greatest hunters in the known galaxy. Our rare mammalian characteristics make us formidable in any field. But hunting, now there is where we're meant to be. Hunting the great Ka'ala lizards in our whole world is how one becomes a hunter. You aren't even considered to be a person until you've killed at least ten of them. Hunting the cocknells in their treetop nests on the moon with a gravity 1.5 times greater than our home is how you become a legend. 
hunted these and countless more and countless wolves over 87 cycles, never once knowing defeat. And now, on this primitive death world, I face the end and the taint of failure for the first time. Initial scans showed the gravity was nearly four times greater than my home. I'd hunted on high-gravity wolves and moons before, but nothing like this. Local animals were beyond anything I'd ever seen. Advantages from lethal venoms, unstoppable strength and speed, natural armor, to nearly perfect natural optical camouflage when seen throughout all of one observed. Had cunning. That was a rare thing in lesser animals on any world. But every single animal seemed to display it to some degree. So, I found the weakest animal on the planet, and chose it as my target. A fellow bipedal mammalian, it seemed a decent challenge at the time. It has been two local soda cycles since the hunt began, and I am already dying. Death worlders are well named, the very air burns my lungs. Perhaps it is a product of my landing area, the dry and desolate place with a heat that I'd never experienced or even heard of. I needed to break out my equipment for hostile atmospheres just to survive. Every bit of local plant life is toxic. I can't resupply through smaller hunts as the animals eat those toxic plants, or eat the things that eat the toxic plants. I only have enough supplies in my ship for four more local soda cycles. I need to finish this quickly. Local reptilian predator attempted to bite me, but missed like the stars. After killing it in retaliation, I analyzed the venom. I need to relocate. Relocation unsuccessful. Every biome on this death world has its own dangers. Temperature is either lethally hot or bone-freezingly cold. Air that is hard to breathe in seems to be everywhere. Atmospheric analysis shows that it is no different from our homes. And yet, it hurts. Local animals seem to be able to see through the cloak on my ship. Every time I land, there is a large predator or pack of predators defending its territory. How? How can organic eyes see through the cloaking device? Finally, on the last day of my supplies, I found an example of my prey wandering alone. I wanted this to be over with as quickly as possible. Uncharacteristically, I charged right into the bipedal mammal and managed to knock it to the ground. A muscle mass in its legs that was completely unexpected kicked me several times on my own height into the air, and it managed to turn my tackle into momentum for a roll to get back onto its feet. It seemed to grasp what I was and what I was doing within seconds of first contact. It bared its teeth at me. I don't know if that was an aggressive gesture, a defensive one, or something else. It closed its mouth and began to make noises in its throat, forcing air through its nasal passage. What happened next was disgusting and the ultimate cause of my rapidly approaching demise. From five times my body length away, it launched a viscous liquid projectile from its mouth, which landed in my eye. It burned. For the gods, it burned. I tried to rub it off, but it just spread Every inch of skin I came into contact with began to blister in seconds. At that point, I decided to cut my losses and leave. 
I washed the projectile off as best I could. It almost seemed alive, as the only thing that worked to stop the burning was a powerful antibiotic cream. I did a standard detox procedure and was told of my condition. Every screen was flashing a warning. I was going to die due to bacterial infection. Not even my plan of going into stasis for the journey home due to lack of supplies would have helped. This short time that the projectile was in contact with my eye, it infected me. No medicine that I had on my ship would save me. I doubt that even a fully equipped medical facility could have helped. The bacteria were beyond. Damn it all to the void. I cannot believe that this is happening to me. Me, one of the greatest hunters of my generation. Brought low by the weakest thing on a death world. I got back to the cockpit, to the ship, and punched the coordinates for home. I put up a standard quarantine procedures, as I have no idea how virulent any of these 700 different kinds of bacteria may be by the time my autopilot gets my corpse home. As a final request, please burn my corpse to stop the spread of any of this. I finish this writing with the hope that you, whoever you are, take this as a warning. Never go to the last planet in my navigation computer. I don't think in the entire history of our great people has such a simple hunt gone so horribly wrong. End of story. Story number two. Human Spirit, written by Rosie013. Mela could feel nothing but despair. Failure. Failure all around, but a failure in particular. She was a military governor's personal position, and the sight of his cooling corpse on the gurney in this pitiful temporary triage shelter weighed heavily on her. The last of the loyalists were entrenched around the entire planet's last spaceport, all nervously waiting for the only remaining transport to be declared ready to evacuate them all. That was unlikely to happen. Without the military governor's leadership, the traitorous hordes would advance far enough to pour artillery fire down and destroy the transport. She had doomed them all by not saving him. A cry went up from that side. Maylar thought the next wave must be coming. But oddly, the barrage hadn't started up. She realized a mistake as a human, of all things, was hastily carried into the medical post. The human mercenaries hadn't been heard from for over a month since they got cut off during one of the many retreats. That any of them still lived is a minor miracle in its own right. Maybe they had been worth the precious funds after all. Mela's sense of hope died quickly as she realized the battered specimen in front of her was not long for this world. No matter what she could do to help it, even the human's fabled healing abilities would not stop the inevitable here. Belatedly, she made eye contact and realized that the human was conscious and looking right at her. And it smiled. It croaked out a greeting and asked what was wrong. Mela's mentored them burst. Nearly in tears, she spewed out her woes on this dying creature, as if somehow he was a confessor of the old faith, like as if taking her woes to grow the grave with him would free them from her shoulders. The human's words were quiet and slurred, but his eyes were clear and focused, 
still full of their inner fire that drove all humans. Spirit, she thought they called it. And what are you going to do about it? Who was she to try and do anything about it? She was just a private physician to a military governor. No. She was the last remaining member of the governor's retinue. Mela was military, but this whole retreat wasn't military anymore and hadn't been for some time now. It was up to her to save everyone. They'd all been her patients at some point. Why would they have stopped now? She was still responsible for them all. She turned and barked to the nearest trooper on guard to bring her a radio. To her surprise, he snapped off a crisp salute and left with haste. This could work. This could work. She would organize and lead one last push, destruction enough to get the transport away with as many survivors as possible. As the air of renewed purpose quickly spread around the last of the loyalists, Mela turned to thank the human. She was too late. He was gone, but the smile on his face wasn't. If Mela could have seen herself in the mirror at that very moment, she would have seen an inner fire in her own eyes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 951. Story number one. A brief, um, further, uh, again, once more, update to the university rules. 185. No human students. No, no, can't say that. Um, 185. No including a keylogger in this document, or making entries undeletable from this document. 186. No packing any of the following into artillery shells. Surprisingly durable chainsaws. Chainsaws in general. Lube. Anything living or recently deceased. Reese-dried pine cones. Vodkas. The blood of any species. Surprisingly durable, though unfortunately non-functioning organs of any kind. Or anything which, while technically not illegal or at the time against the rules, would have you put in front of a war crime tribunal were it actually used in warfare. 187. No touching artillery shells at all unless you have a really good reason. 188. A really good reason and other such similar statements, at the very least, when applied to this document, means a good reason according to the relevant department head, not you. 189. If you have to wonder whether or not it's against the rules, it either is or soon will be. Don't. 190. If you don't have to wonder as such, because you can conclude that it is or such an action will cause an update to these rules, don't do it. 191. Do not make doors require that they be sung at before they can be opened. 192. No posting this list to Reddit in order to get help finding loopholes. 193. Or on any other social media. 194. If the word loophole crosses your mind at any time while reading this list, you are to inform the relevant department head of said loophole and not use it. 195. The same applies to any synonym thereof. 196. No using orbital cannons to toast bread. 197. No using anything except a toaster to toast bread. 
198. No using anything except a toaster with no modifications made, designed, or suggested by humans to toast red. 199. Scrubbed from records by order of Union Military Intelligence. See file The Horror 553876 for heavily redacted details. 200. Don't do anything which causes several new government agencies to exist, simply to deal with the implications of it being a thing. 201. Scrub from records by order of the UNI. No details available. 202. Scrub from the records by order of the UNI. No details available. 203. Scrub from the records by order of the UNI. No details available. 204. Don't do anything even vaguely related to the above. 205. Rule zero is not ignore the following if the idea seems cool. There is no rule zero on this document, nor is there a rule X with X being null, a decimal, integer less than one fraction, irrational number, imaginary number, letter, or any symbol or combination of symbols besides integers greater than zero. 206. No detaching and throwing your own limb at somebody. 207. Could you please stop making other students nervous over rumors about this Project Reality Diner and a supposed anti-human conspiracy? The xenophobia-fueled attacks are unfortunate, but they don't need a conspiracy to happen. You're not scary. 208. No cancer guns. 209. No guns that shoot blobs of cancer. 210. No guns which are cancerous. 211. No guns in which are in any way diseased. 212. Yes, the university does reside in a territory of a nation. Yes, other nations might go to war with such a nation. If people attack the university, you have to take prisoners in an ethical manner, not use the event as an excuse to test some of your more exotic weaponry. 213. No experimentally driving prisoners insane. 214. No experimenting on prisoners. Apparently, this one needs to be restated, but this time including prisoners of war. 215. No experimenting on terrorists. 216. No converting massive sections of the university into pulsating flesh. 217. Always should be comprised of neither tongues nor teeth. 218. Same for doors and flagpoles. 219. No using finely tuned orbital laser platforms to make fruit salad. 220. No creating currencies backed by liters of tears. 221. No liters of blood or any other kind of bodily fluid. 222. No using orbital lasers to assist in surgery. 223. No using orbital lasers to warm your coffee. 224. No using highly elaborate setups to convince someone that they've been shrunk to one-eighth scale. 225. If it causes psychological trauma, no. 226. Any human rule 34 is a psychological weapon when used against non-humans. 227. No using orbital lasers to evaporate raindrops before they hit you. 228. Fine. If someone attacks this place, despite it being one of the most heavily armed places known to exist, when did that happen, you can do with them as you wish. 
229. No throwing anyone else's limb at anyone. 230. Yes, the blue pseudo-gas is mysterious. Yes, it may very well lead to a grand scientific progress. However, despite that, if using completely excessive amounts of explosives against it didn't cause any reaction other than obliterating the moon the experiment was taking place on, doing so again won't get any different results. Yes, repeatability is the basis of science, but it didn't work the first five times, and it won't work the sixth. It is not a valid excuse to set off fireworks, antimatter-based or not, just because you've figured out that you have to keep it in constant motion in order to contain it doesn't mean that a lot more motion is the answer to getting it to do anything. Repeat after me, explosives do not solve anything. End of story. Story number two. Out of the box, written by Menegator. Senior council member Ohada made the equivalent of a human sigh while waiting for the conversation to stop. No such luck. Not that she couldn't understand their excitement. Galdar is a very old race and had not many opportunities to be excited for several millennia. She waited patiently, and when the conversation stopped, she started. To say that we, Galdar, are a senior species is an understatement. We are what's left of the first ones in the galaxy. We had an interstellar civilization before the last common ancestor of genus Homo appeared in Africa. Humanity is the latest so far civilization to achieve FTL. So in the eyes of a member of the Galdar ruling council, they should be almost as unimportant as the non-sentient species. Well, there are very few things that can baffle the Galdar. Humanity as a whole is one of them. For starters, they were way too advanced for their age. Arguably, achieving FTL is a major accomplishment, but most species achieve FTL by managing to activate one of the gates seeded by a long-gone ancient peers, and there lied the accomplishment. Humans, while new to the gate in their home system, didn't bother even trying to activate the gate. They studied it and created their own version of FTL, a method that, though inferior to the gate network, didn't limit them to the network itself. Their sudden appearance in the stagnant galactic community created a great upheaval. They drew attention from the Jarson, who found out the hard way that humans, while they appeared to be dominated by their emotions, did fight in a cold, calculating, and highly asymmetrical ways. Jarzan themselves, or once left to them, after the humans made Jarzan's call system go supernova, can attest to that. The message, do not mess with us, was received by all the rest of the galactic civilizations. Many of them came running to us as if we were their mothers, but what should we have done? Go exterminate the humans because they responded after being provoked, and in the process draw their attention to ourselves. I suppose we could exterminate them if we tried hard enough, but at a great cost, and there are not many of us left in this universe. The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must, is a universal constant, just as much as the speed of light. We knew that, humans knew that, and the jaws and idiots ought to have known that too. 
An agreeing murmur filled the chamber, but it was quickly toned down. We invited a human delegation. Humans are freakishly clever. I know that they know that this invitation was not more than a pretense to study them more closely, and this was a double-edged sword. They would also get a chance to study us, and we are not in the habit of meddling with junior races. She paused for some moments. I admit that it was fun. I can't remember doing anything this exciting in the last 5,000 cycles. We were trading on a very thin line, trying to learn as much as we could about them while giving back as little as possible. Not only are humans freakishly clever, as I said earlier, they are wired to being able to assess with a high degree of success ambiguous situations. They name their ability reading between the lines, and by the stars they are good at that. She enjoyed the effect of the captivated audience, and she paused again for some moments before continuing. We know that natural languages have an inherent ambiguity. While every known species try to mitigate this ambiguity by trying to be as exact as possible, humans embrace this ambiguity and use it as a weapon, thinking unconventionally, or as they describe, out of the box, gets not frowned upon, but encouraged. I will give you some examples. The excitement in the council chambers rose even more. Please open the presentation document on page 84. There you can find their calendar. As you can see, their equivalent of a cycle is named year, and their equivalent of the eighth cycle is a month. Please review the calendar carefully. Now please answer the question, what month has 28 days in a normal year? and 29 at a leap year. She went patiently for everyone to submit their answer. Everybody replied February, and everybody got it wrong. She said having the Galda equivalent of a chuckle. A murmur started to rise, but she moved her tentacles to get their attention. The correct answer is every month. Before arguing, please read the question. It asks what month has 28 or 29 days and not what month has exactly 28 or 29 days. The silence was almost deafening. And this, esteemed council members, is just an example. You should have read their body of laws. It's an exercise on how to write as precisely as possible while concurrently being creatively vague to allow multiple interpretations should not full thought needs arise. What they call a creative interpretation is not merely a form of art. For humans, it is a science. What is said matters, but what is not said matters even more. Let me give you another example. The laws of war prohibit attacking the civilian population. But they destroyed the Jarzan's core industrial complex, the core worlds. They violated their laws replied Council Mental Afonzon, interrupting Alhada. That's exactly what I told them, esteemed colleague, admitted Alhada, and continued. Their answer, while highly disconcerting, is factually accurate. What was their answer? asked Avazan. Me really didn't. It was this sun going supernova that killed them. We merely accelerated the process. End of... Story. Tales from Under Space 952. 
Story number one. Cruise Crash, written by Bellymaster. Andrew worked full-time on a pleasure cruise ship. Gorgeous views, exotic locales, and tourists. Delicious, if sometimes wiggly, food. The bay was decent, but the hours more than made up for it. Apparently, four hours of work per day was considered towing the line of ethical treatment within this company's policies. Swing music played in the background, one of his favorite playlists. He chuckled and scrubbed the dishes. Big, small, multifaceted, and crystalline, they varied with the races that requested them, apparently. It was a hard job to juggle how to wash all the various types. He just tapped the instructions beside the window. Too easy. The automatic scrubbing machines hummed and jangled, dancing to their own tune. Andrew looked out the window at the local oceans and smiled. Bright yellow and green with splashes of purple corals. It was one of his favorite routes. Reminded him of the oceans he grew up beside. Sadly, a lot of the alien planets hadn't discovered surfing. His boss stumped in behind him, her nervous grunting giving her away. Andrew, darling, you didn't take your break again. Please rest. I don't want my best dishwasher to drop from exhaustion. She looked at him, genuinely concerned. A Jan, she was actually quite fast for one of her race. Hard-shelled and wide-eyed. She looked like a daughter's. Sort of. No, not really. Andrew bobbed back and forth with the music keeping washing. I'm going to work through the break again, ma'am. I'm in the zone, you know. If his boss had a look, she would be biting on it. I don't want you to get worn out. Besides, uh... She looked around guiltily. The other staff are saying that I'm overworking you. I might get reported. Andrew paused and looked mock horror on his face. With a flourish, he wiped off his bandana and wiped his hands. Ma'am, I think I'll be taking my break now. Extra long. The homely Jahan sighed in relief. Thank you, Andrew. You're a lifesaver. Andrew walked out of his washing station, wiping his head and exclaiming loudly, Oh man, I guess I'll take my break now. What a job. His co-workers in the kitchen were a great bunch, but far too sensitive. A few looked at him with pity. Oh, she just works you to the bone. Really, you should send a complaint. It's unethical. His abdomen almost cramped as he tried to keep from laughing. Don't worry, we humans are a hardy bunch. He gave his chest a thump. They winced as he walked out. I hate it when he does that. Really, it's unethical. Andrew navigated through the bumbling hordes of tourists on the flow-flying open-air cruise ship. Chatter, footsteps, clattering dishes from the kitchens. He walked in step to the music. Eight decks, full anemones, performance every night. He'd been working on the ship for six months and still hadn't seen everything. The dishwasher flipped his bandana onto his shoulder and leaned against the railing on the outside deck. Various races were sunning themselves, photosynthesizing, and generally having a good time. Light fell on his white shirt and reflected off the decks, causing him to squint out at the view. Bright pink clouds, vast yellow-green oceans, and spotty islands in the water greeted him. Animals fritted and fluttered around the ship, feeding off of its resonant energy and the scraps left by patrons.
One of the tiny bunk birds landed on his shoulder and pecked at him. Andrew pucked it back. Suddenly, the ship's butter smooth crews began to shudder. Andrew's eyes grew wide, and he gripped the rail. A warning siren went off. What? What's going on? Somebody turn that off. It's annoying. Hate the song. The ship dropped, not deadly fast, but enough to make his stomach lurch. At least six tourists around him ejected their meals all over the ground. Andrew clung tight to the rail and grabbed a nearby quivern that looked like it was about to fly up the edge. Screams filled the air. I do not enjoy this at all. No, no, make it stop, make it stop. Call back, protect me. With a crash that honestly was not that bad, the cruise ship met the yellow-green seas. Andrew froze, expecting something worse to follow up. And that was it. Apparently the surface tension wasn't nearly as bad as normal water, and the ship's gravity pull let up in the last moments. Within swimming distance was a series of islands that were a lot bigger up close. He let go of the quiver and double-checked the customers within sight. They were still, then began moving and yelling. Cries, indignant remarks, and demands for a refund echoed around the ship. Andrew muttered to himself, Yeah, of course this happens on my break. He immediately set off to the bridge. Two levels later, and he was behind a crowd shouting questions at the captain, who was backpedaling furiously and turning a rather embarrassed color. The captain received their barrage of questions before erupting with a shout, I don't know what to do. The company never ran over rescue protocols. They claimed the ships would never fail. I'm just a figurehead. The room fell silent as the outcome of the situation fell on them. Andrew scrunched up his eyebrows and began gently nudging his way through the crowd to the captain. All around him, terrified customers began muttering. There were a few precious moments left before panic set in. Finally, he was close enough. Hey, what's the safety protocol? The captain stared at him blankly. All the customers turned to look at the human with the white shirt, red bandana, and blue jeans. Um, don't crash the ship. Andrew climbed up to where the captain was standing. Well, that sucks. Seriously, though, we should be fine. This ship was built to support everyone anyway, right? Can't we just finish the cruise like this? One of the customers pointed out the window. Hey, I think we're sinking. The crowd erupted. Andrew slammed his palm on the metal wall several times for attention. The captain covered his delicate ears. Hey, hi, hello. He had their attention again, but not for long. Jeez, you guys, calm down. It's not a big deal. Let's just get everyone from the ship onto the islands over there. The captain looked at him. How do we do that? Andrew had no idea. He snatched the captain's hat and put it on. I have an idea. Who can swim? Who can fly? A few motions of affirmation came from the members in the crowd. If you can swim, get out there into the water and see if we're really sinking. If you can fly, go measure the distance from the front of the ship to the shore. I want you back here in 15 minutes. The rest of you chill out. We'll take care of it. Four hours later, panels from the ship formed a floating bridge between the ship and the islands. By taking advantage of the safety equipment on the ship, which there absolutely was, Andrew just had to find it himself. And the surface tension of the waters, the tourists were all able to make it across the water. 
After transferring the customers, the ship lightened enough to the point where the residential mechanics could make spot fixes and the failed magnetic repulsor, allowing the ship to fly again. Two days later, when the ship didn't show up at the port and search teams were sent out, they found the ship snug up on one of the islands and all their customers on the beach. Rise, food and music filled the air as the customers enjoyed their impromptu premium island excursion. The safety officer landed beside the festivities. What happened? What's going on? This isn't approved. The old captain marched up. The ship crashed. We had to evacuate, troubleshoot and fix the cruise ship. Also, I quit. The officer did a double take. Wait, you can't just... But how did you do all this? The captain pointed down the beach to the makeshift kitchen area. A human wearing his hat and dancing around to swing music with the jahan while washing dishes. You gave him the symbol of your authority? No. He took it. I sure didn't know what to do with it. No thanks to you. The security officer brushed off the remark. Who is he? He's calling himself Captain Cook, but I think he's just the dishwasher. End of story. Story number two. They see themselves... Written by underscore, underscore, dash, underscore, 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 dash, 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 underscore. Their actions were always a curiosity, and at first the strange behavior of their individual lonely ones was chalked up to their long lifespans and the state of their technology. A people whose technology and knowledge effectively made them magical or divine to less advanced people were bound to view the cosmos and act in a peculiar manner. But the stories only grew stranger as the lonely-inspired interacted and traveled amongst the lonely ones. A group of planetary scientists that had named their disposable drones and given them unique decorations had proceeded to go above and beyond necessary effort to retrieve said drones, said disposable drones. During the first joint military exercise between the lonely ones and the lonely inspiration, one of the former's vessels lost an animal planetside. The animal in question was a feline, and easy enough to replace. However, the entire crew, not just a ground component of the vessel, nearly 2,000 individuals, organized a search and rescue that dwarfed any search of a missing person the inspired had performed. A monolithic undertaking to successfully rescue a feline named Sammy Oscar. When questioned about the massive expenditure of resources, the inspired were informed that the ship could not sail without its cat. That reasoning confounded one particular researcher, one who, despite her lame right arm, had become one of the prominent authorities on Lonely One's culture and philosophy. Why were felines important? Why were disposable drones worth saving and restoring? She wanted to attribute it to some sort of idol worship. They had an immense fascination with felines in particular, especially their more ancient civilizations. But that didn't explain the drones. This confounded her for years, until she was eating lunch and saw a face in her potatoes. It wasn't that they saw cute and cuddly things. It wasn't that they saw faces and shapes in inanimate objects. No, the lonely ones took it farther. They saw themselves in those same objects and beings. Sammy Oscar was important because the crew projected the same friendship and camaraderie that they had onto the feline, 
whether or not it was sentient enough to feel such things. The drone, named Sharky 2, had to be recovered and restored because its operators considered it a full-fledged member of their team, even if that meant going into hostile locations to fetch it, the very thing it was designed to prevent. That was why they could relate to everyone within the Lonely Inspired. They could see themselves, or at least being equal to themselves, in everything and everyone. They even had a phrase for it, anthropomorphism. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 953 Chaos Doctrine, written by a lone donut. Eleron was an awful planet, on the outer edge of the Goldlock zone with a red star. Hard enough that water remained unfrozen, especially on a planet which had a surface of 93% water, but not so hot that anywhere on the land could be considered topical. The native fish species were barely edible, and the fauna was worse. Only volcanic chains of islands poked above the surface, and those were constantly battered and eroded by these ceaseless storms, and smashed upon by the errant icebergs. Most wouldn't consider it hospitable for prisoners, let alone children. The Daiku, on the other hand, had seen fit to turn it into a military academy, Close to the equator, where it wasn't as cold, the oligarchs had seen fit to build on a set of islands, and the best and the brightest minds of the upper house would go to learn to be commanders they were born to be. Naval tactician Zorion hated Eleron more than any other posting, a testament to his time spent there. He did not want to stay on that water-soaked rock, but to leave you had to prove that you were worthy. If you weren't truly worthy, they would eventually send you back to teach there. His classroom was full of cadets, themselves children of upper houses who sought their own glory in the Empire. The oligarchy of the Daika was, after all, an empire with three emperors of different name. Fleet Tactics was the class of the semester, focusing on how to use tactics of other races to overcome those races. It was a few weeks into trading and the students were tiring of his class. After all, in close quarters training, they learned to use a dagger and fist. In marksmanship, they shot. In the galactic affairs, they debated. But fleet tactics, in this class, they merely read. And not from tablets, but from printed materials in books, some of which were as old as the founding of this facility. Children wanted adventure. His digipen met the board, and he wrote the lesson of the day, Mimillian Conflict, dealing with warm-blooded foes. Already some children yawned, and he could feel the hand raised to the air. He turned to find the pupil in question, one Cadet Magali of the House Qua, a bright girl, but one with more questions than answers. Yes, Cadet, Zorion pointed to her. His tone was tired and without real interest. Naval tactician, since we are going to discuss mammalians, are we going to discuss humans? She blinked all four eyes in anticipation, and a hush fell over the room. Beaks clicked and feathers rustled. Of course they wanted to know about the space apes. Who wouldn't? No, his response was uninterested still, annoyed now, and he turned back to the board to write his notes. Another voice cut him off, however. Sir... They're undefeated, 
Surely they would be a worthy case study. Zerai sighed. As the murmur flew through the crowd, more questions echoed through the stone halls, lost to the growing din, before he could finally turn his back around and regarded the room coldly. Silence fell again. Eyes transfixed on him. To his part, he watched them in turn, and he knew that, with news from the front lines, that humanity had joined the Kardalian War, predicting a victory for Kardalia and the Empire. They would be interested. Every blasted news channel was talking as though the fighting was over. He resigned himself to this fact and placed the pen down. Two paces forward and then sound of talon on polished stone. And he considered his words. Cadet Cadio, tell me, where is the best place to command a battle from? The cadet in question stood, his feathers folding flat. Sure, that much simple question could be a trick. Still, he answered plainly, from the bridge of the command ship, naval technician. When the aged Daiku didn't immediately say anything, he continued, the Singarian battleship would be ideal, but with its equipped bridge and communications equipment. Zoraya nodded and turned to another section of the room. Cadet Paco, tell me, against the Hyuxian fleets, what would you say is the best deployment of vessels? Now he wanted to see how much he had studied the conflict, a test in real time. The cadet stood, flattening his subdued pink uniform. He straightened. Currently, sir, considering recent tactics deployed by the Hyaxians, I would deploy six task forces, each commanded by a Saigarian, as suggested by Cadet Cadell. I would deploy four cruisers, ten destroyers, and two artillery cruisers with each. Lastly, I would command from a carrier, such as the D.O.W.S. Skybreaker, my own task force composed of six cruisers and eight frigates. He paused to consider his words for a moment, and concluded with, As Ioxians focused fast ships and hit-and-run tactics, this would make quick work of any ship they sent at my numbers. I could devastate their supply lines and render them ineffective. He swallowed hard then seated himself. Zorayan nodded. Excellent, a solid strategy, and very similar to the one your father deployed at the Battle of Zoya Prime. You study well, fledgling. He looked around the room, and his head cocked. Yet those tactics proved useless. The Yuxians adapted. They too have studied our ways, and are adjusting, as it is war. Hence the stalemate we find ourselves in. One of you called out that humans are undefeated. Why is that? Confused looks bounced around. Truth was, little was known about the human conflicts. They preferred to stay out of conflict and global affairs as a whole. A mere two years ago, the Hyuxians were some of the strongest trading partners, and now they had joined the conflict against them. One student stood and Zorion turned to regard her. Their use of electronic warfare and EMP weapons, this coupled with their fleet still making use of kinetic weapons, means that they are hard to counter effectively. Most people underestimate them since they don't mobilize large fleets. Zorion shook his head. Another stood in her place. Then, um, it has to be their use of stealth technology. 
Their ships can remain undetected at great range. They get in close and strike, all before anyone can retaliate. Again, the naval tactician shook his head. None of these, he responded, and yet all of these. You are studying past human tactics. Their EW ships were used in the first human Xeno war, and their heavy use of stealth ships made the war of the Orion Arm was notable. But both of those strategies are moves we have only seen them do once. No, there is only one true strategy employed by humans, and that is the Chaos Doctrine. Another murmur filled the room. This time, an almost excited energy accompanied it. Zoraya allowed it to continue for a moment, waving his hand through the air, bringing hollow projectors to life, and in the middle of that space above his head, a vessel appeared. This is the United Human Nations warship, specifically the UNS Spearhead, a Ticonderoga class battleship. She has eight dorsal-mounted mass driver turrets, four barrels apiece, six ventral-mounted of the same, ten and ten-point defense cannons and a dorsal and ventral hull as well. Fifteen flak cannons along the bout line and four forward torpedo deployment systems, two aft. The sloped armor means that, if you're dumb enough to position a ship broadside to this vessel, all fourteen of its cannons can hit you, and all fourteen have a completely vertical firing path. This ship projects power. What is it missing? Discussions broke out. People studied the sharp angles. Armor meant to deflect laser and kinetic weapons fire alike. Its massive engines mounted at the rear were augmented with a pair at the front and small wings at the bow. One of the few weapon blind spots. It could crawl, even if one disabled those rear engines. But the naval tactician had asked. There had to be something missing. One cadet approached and manipulated the model, turning it along the Z-axis, studying it as it spun. Naval technician, where is the bridge? This earned him a pleased pat on the head. Humans do not have exposed bridges. Their uh, command and control center is located in the center, far from the hull. They rely on their heavy sensor technology to see. This isn't to say that they don't have spotting rooms, should they need, but they are small and rely on people transmitting back to the commander and the gunners if they need. This has led to one of their most shocking tactics. The display shifted, and a Kylan dreadnought was displayed, surrounded by debris. Its hull was riddled with holes. Drifting slowly away from it was a conning tower, atop of which sat a bridge. Human tactics dictate that when engaging with aliens, Xenos, as they call us, they immediately fire to disable the shields, and then do not target any other systems. Their ships focus fire at the base of the bridge tower. If none is present, they hammer the bridge itself. Feathers rustled, and the din erupted. It was madness. Why attack the bridge when there were weapons emplacements, engines, critical systems? All this did was kill the command crew. Slowly, though, the din fell into silence as it dawned on the classroom. Guns could be repaired, engines reignited, Critical systems replaced. But the best commanders a species had. How did one counter that? It was centuries-old tradition to be able to see the battlefield, something every other species mirrored. Every other species. 
but humans. How do we fight this, naval technician? Came a meek question from the rear of the room. Zerai merely hung his head and stooped his shoulders. His standard sign of surrender. Sure, they could adapt, but humans had made their fleets to fight themselves before they discovered other species. They were used to fighting blind, fighting dirty. Their tactics changed by the day, and they seemed to study every other species, adding the tactics to their own. Tablets vibrated, news flashes coming through. Normally, this would draw ire from the instructor, but he let it slide. The Haraxians had surrendered. Not a single shot had been fired by the human forces. Their ships arrived at the front lines, and the commanders surrendered. In the face of chaos, unable to predict what was going to happen, the Haraxians opted to simply lay down their guns. How did you predict an enemy with no rulebook, who made it up as they went along, who laughed in the face of tradition? And so, humanity was undefeated still. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.